judgment without disregard to his human rights or dignity. Posthumously, his death capulted to the civil rights movement. I want to remind everybody the young man's name was Emmett Till. 66 years later, on September 21st, 2021, another black young man, an employee of Alameda Health System, was accused of offensive behavior toward a patient. The allegations were not objectively investigated. He was profiled and stereotyped as a threat and fast forwarded by the leadership in the emergency room, the department leader to call the Alameda County Sheriff's Department to escort this young black man, which was an employee of AHS off the AHS campus. The actions of this emergency department leader touch upon that stereotyping, racial profiling, and failure to recognize human dignity and the individual's rights still resonates in 2021. Human dignity is the foundation of human rights. It also recognizes that we as individuals possess a special value in society and we should all be worthy of respect simply because we are human beings. Alameda Health System should take an introspective look into the emergency department leaders recent actions that have proven incapable of holding an employee's unalienable human rights, respect and dignity and immediately discharge from their and immediately discharge them from their leadership position at Alameda 30 Health seconds. System. The staff and community of Alameda Health System deserve better. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, Ms. Austin. Next, we have Ms. Erica Bush. Is Ms. Bush, are you in the room? I can't see. Yes, you. I'm here. Can you oh, hear me? Hi. Good evening, Ms. Bush. Hi. Good evening. Um, uh, our clerk of the you have three minutes. Our clerk of the board will give you a thirty second heads up. Is that okay? Yes, that's perfect. And wonderful. Go for it, please. Perfect. So very quickly, my name is Erica Bush. I'm a community health outreach worker um, and master of social work student at San Francisco State, and I've been with um, Alameda Health System for nearly three years. And I would just like to say that I would love um, to be a witness in my generation to changes in many aspects of our leadership representation at AHS. Um, like I said, I came here nearly three years ago to serve all, but in the mix of that, um, I continue to deal with um, institutional racism, discrimination and exclusion that affects many aspects of the intersectionalities of myself um, and how I show up for the patients. And it has deeply affected my mental health. Um, how our managers and supervisors treat AHS employees says a lot about our, our level of system care for the patients. Um, I'm an Oakland native and everything that I do um, when I come to work each day is for the better benefit of Alameda County's patients, um, but many managers and supervisors and long haul coworkers, so people who've been here 20, 30, 10 years that are currently in place um, have tried to fight against my passions and sincere dedication to serve my community. Um, I also want to quickly say that I know that our union is also not perfect. There are still, there are still legislators that are in place that we are enacting um, from during the Civil War era where African-Americans were only recognized as three-fifths of a person's. So the infrastructure in which we continue to operate needs to be completely dismantled and not for the better benefit of only the unionized employee, but for the healthy well-being of our patients um, and for the healthy well-being of each and every employee, including our managers and supervisors. So thank you. 
Thank you, Ms. Bush, for your comments. Thank you to both of you for public comment as, as uh, we, we try to stake hold to all feedback as a gift. Madam Clerk, I see that there's no one else for public comment. Is that correct? That is correct. With that, we'll close out the public comment uh, uh, portion of the evening and we'll go to the Executive Officer's Report Item A. Uh, everyone who attends knows that we uh, attach an article for our consideration. The article this evening is from the Harvard Business Review and is entitled, Is Your Organization Surviving Change or Thriving in It? Um, I want to give you a little bit of excerpt of uh, some, some of the words which were pointed to me, and then we'll open this up for discussion. Human beings are resistant to many kinds of change. However, we are also a species driven by curiosity and programmed to seek out novelty. The difference between embracing and resisting change is rooted in our brain-body hardwiring. Evolution has resulted in a two-channel system, which is responsible for much of our response in times of uncertainty. The survive channel is activated by threats and leads to feelings of fear, anxiety, and stress. These triggers activate the sympathetic nervous system, and when working well, direct all attention towards eliminating the threat. By contrast, the thrive channel is activated by opportunities and is associated with feelings of excitement, passion, joy, and enthusiasm. These triggers activate the parasympathetic nervous system, allowing our mind to broaden its perspectives and collaborate in new ways. Creating smart, fast change means preventing the survive channel from overheating while activating the thrive channel in sufficient numbers of people leading to more innovation, adaptation, and leadership. No single lesson comes across more clearly as one related to leadership, specifically the need for more of it from more people. Leadership as a behavior, not as a position, has the capacity to meet the change challenge of today. There's a strong need to reconstruct the modern organization and create an environment that fosters more autonomy, participation, and leadership. Now, I chose this article because I was reflecting, uh, uh, as I often do when I'm in agenda building mode, that our, all the change that our organization has gone over the past year. I wanna remind everyone that yesterday was the one year anniversary of the end of a five-day strike by almost 3,500 of our employees. I think it's safe to say that the strike that occurred uh, last October 7th through October 12th was a catalytic event in our organization's history that is influenced, in my perspective, a new and better tenor of, a, of this organization. We're not perfect, but the tenor seems to be moving along in, in, in a favorable way. I'll say the jury is still out on whether we're an organization that survives change or actually thrives in it. It's my hope that we will learn to thrive in times of change. And uh, now I'll end my comments and I'll open it up for anyone who wants to make uh, the trustees first who want to make comment on this article. And of course, uh, give uh, open up the mic to Vice President Jensen and Secretary Treasurer Esteen. Um, trustees, comments? I have a comment. Fox, sir. Um, one of the things that uh, was mentioned in the article is that uh, 
in order to thrive, leadership needs to lean into opportunity, not only into threats. Um, and I'm it's kind of struck by that because, you know, the board has about, I guess this board has been in place 10 months and we haven't looked very much into opportunities uh, and, and certainly haven't looked much into, into what kind of strategic opportunities we might have at AHS because we've had virtually no uh, uh, discourse on strategy at all. Um, and not, not to be focusing on our current administration, but something I've noticed, I noticed throughout my career in healthcare is that healthcare executives and managers tend to very easily revert to managing operations rather than business development for their areas. And uh, just an observation, but I think uh, it's, it, that's where they feel most comfortable. Healthcare operations are complicated. Um, so I think it's, it's easy for, for people who might not be that comfortable in strategy and business development to focus almost all of their attentions on operations and not, and not on the kind of thing that this article is talking about. Uh, and so I would just advise that as a board, we think about that and try to direct our, our attention, uh, toward leaning into opportunity. Well, Trustee Fox, thank you for those words and thank you for reading the article, right? You, so you, you quoted it. I mean, there are two ways to modulate, modulate the survive channel. Well, number one, reduce the noise to eliminate unnecessary certainty. And then you, you made reference to how do we make thriving thrive here? We lean on opportunities, not just threats. And I say we've been in threat survival mode for quite some time in this organization perhaps the entire history of this organization to celebrate progress and three delegate control. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So thank you for your comments, trustee Fox trustees. Trustee Banerjee. Good evening. Uh, trustee Dong was before me. So go oh, ahead. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Trustee Dong, then trustee Banerjee. Sorry. A lot of people on the screen. Go ahead. Trustee Banerjee. <laughs> yeah. I think the um, the uh, the portion which said that leadership is a practice or a behavior was really important because really uh, hopefully that that gives us as we even do think about now engage in our strategic work that we absolutely need to do because the planets are never aligned. The stars are never, it, there's never a good time to do it. And sometimes crises are the best time to be doing those. Uh, in this time during uh, COVID and all of the other, um, you know, crises that have happened in the past, a lot of new interdependencies have come up. And this is a time for us to like, see how do we build linkages and not just be looking inwards, but all of the possible county external partner linkages so that together we might be doing that. So even in our, like our strategic planning and looking at the opportunities, I hope it won't be just looking, you know, at the landscape and the four walls uh, of our facilities, but really thinking very, very strategically about all of the ways in which we can improve the continuum of care. 
for our communities. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Trustee Dong? Um, I want to say uh, thank you for attaching this article. I, I, I love this article. And I really hope that our management team and our executive team embrace um, how we can go about developing leadership as a behavior everywhere uh, in the organization and, you know, try to turn on that Thrive Channel um, for AHS. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of that whole uh, theory, uh, theoretical framework of a, a chaotic organization, you know, a chaos, but organized chaos. <laughs> and since we're on the receiving end of a lot of unpredictables uh, from our uh, client base, patient base, as well as our partners and funding, I mean, I think it's really uh, an appropriate article for us to look at um, as Alan said, as we move forward in our strategic planning discussions, but I'm hoping that the executive team will embrace this concept. So thank you. Thank you, Trustee Dong. Uh, Madam Secretary, Trustee Esteem. Thank you so much. Uh, I too appreciated the point that Trustee Fox caught about um, leaning on opportunities and not threats. So I won't reiterate that, but something else that caught my eye was delegating control. Uh, as you, Dr. Chair, have pointed out, this is the anniversary of a strike that created opportunity for the leadership to shift and change, for this board to shift and change. And there was one quote that stood out to me where it says, the idea that people place a disproportionately high value on things they help create, often referred to as the IKEA effect, has been well documented mm -hmm. in psychology literature. An environment where leaders encourage and delegate control helps inspire initiative and leadership because more people are invested in achieving the outcomes. And I think that what we see in union membership and activation of the workforce is a desire for shared governance, a desire for shared control. And what we saw at the end of last year was that those desires had not been met and workers spoke up and as a result, we are here now to enact their desires, which is shared governance and shared control. So thank you so much for sharing this article with us. I think it highlights many, many good things that we can absolutely lean into. Thank you, Trustee Esteen. Madam Vice President. You're on mute, ma'am. I, um, I don't have any comments. It was interesting and um, I, all of the points were well taken. I, I did um, find it fascinating that John Cotter was, wrote the textbook for my business program and he's still around writing. He's still doing theater. it. <laughs> John Cotter is still doing it. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, trustees, any other further comments? Um, I'll give executive team if uh, and no, no obligation here. If there's any, if there's any uh, comment that needs to be had, oh, would, would like to be had here. Oh, I see uh, uh, Mr. Jackson's hand up. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Chair Bouquet. I um, this was an example of great minds thinking alike because uh, Trustee Esteem stole my thunder. I was going right to the delegation of control in the IKEA effect, which really jumped out at me because certainly that's I think. You know, I would humbly say that's been a hallmark of what this administrative team has tried to do was to be transparent and to engage because of the fact that an, envir an environment where leaders encourage and delegate control helps inspire initiative and leadership. 
And I, I believe that. And I think we've seen evidence of that in the past, you know, nine plus months that this team has been in place and I'm confident we'll see more. Another thing that I was struck by was at the very outset of the article, there was a CEO basically saying, you know, I don't want to lose the gains that we've achieved during COVID. And I was brought to mind of um, curb cuts. Those of you of a certain age will remember when they first started cutting the curb so that, you know, um, disabled people um, could move up and down curbs. But so many people benefited from that. And it was amazing how ubiquitous and helpful that was for everybody in society, not just those people who had limited mobility. And we're never going back. And I have been of a mind that, you know, the things that we've initiated and really dove in, leaned into during COVID, like telemedicine in a way that we really hadn't embraced before, we're never going back. That's a part of um, who we are and the way we're going to be delivering care. So um, I'm grateful for this article, and I do think we have great opportunities. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. With that, I don't see any other hands up. And I'll say I have a horrible IKEA table in my house that I put together myself and I won't throw it away. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so uh, with that, um, let's close out item A and we'll go to item B, the CEO report. Mr. Jackson, you're back on, sir. And um, the report is yours. Um, excuse me, through the chair. If yes, ma'am. Before um, James starts, I just wanted to um, make a point, if I could. Of course, yes. Um, I had shared with my colleagues a, a, a story from KQED last week, and it, it's a little bit relevant to moving forward in a time of change. It was The article was about the bridge program. There was interviews with um, Highland Hospital leaders in the bridge program talking about how important it is to support, reco to support recovery by, by addressing the addiction and not just passing it on or releasing the person who's addicted or turning back our backs on them. So um, I would just urge my colleagues to take a look at the story if you haven't already. And I would commend leadership and especially the bridge leaders, the physicians and providers in, in Highland ED who are trying so hard to to cut into this terrible epidemic that we're going through right now with substance abuse and, and not just in the ways with buprenorphine and other, other supports like that, but in um, counseling and and social supports, et cetera. So thank you. Matt, Madam Vice President, thank you for that. I know that uh, this this uh, KQED article has been going around. I know our interim CMO has been uh, lauding it. Our CEO has been lauding it. And this goes to that Thrive channel, uh, which is celebrate progress. And I think uh, you can't celebrate progress too much. You may have stole some thunder from your CEO on that mention. So um, <laughs> with that, um, we sure. will close out item A. And we will go to the CEO. Chair report. Bouquet, if I, if I may. Uh, yes, sir. Sorry to interrupt there. Uh, uh, we may have a public comment that didn't make it. To, oh, really? Uh, yes. Um, Was it to an agendized item? No. Uh, okay. So uh, this may be an opportunity for you. Like, yes, let, uh, let, let, let's, make, let's make space for that. I, I apologize. I didn't see it in my email or whatever. Um, who is public comment? Veronica P., I believe. I see Ms. Veronica P. at the bottom of my screen. Uh, good evening, uh, Veronica. Uh, you have three minutes on the clock. Our uh, clerk will give you a 30-second warning. Is that acceptable? Yes, it is. Good. Uh, go for it. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Veronica Palacios, 
and I am the Vice President for the General Chapter for Alameda Health Systems. On September 21st, the emergency room director failed to protect an employee after his life was threatened by a patient. The employee was not aware nor notified of the threat made against his life. Instead, this employee was racially profiled and criminalized by having the deputies call for, called for him to be escorted out of the system over a false accusation that the leadership determined true without actual facts. The safety of staff and patients were in the ED leadership's hands and she failed. What if the patient's threats came true? What if a disaster occurred at Highland Hospital that night? A week later, an emergency room nurse was threatened by security guard and be on the lookout flyers were posted throughout the hospital. The only difference between the nurse and the clerk is the race. Today, a BOLO alert was sent out for a clinician. Let's talk about equality and exercising it. Leadership has a responsibility to the employees for their safety and well-being. Our safety should be top priority. There have been many lighthouse complaints against the emergency room director in the short time she accepted her role. I have spoken with James Jackson and Lorna Jones and the deputies. They have been very, very receptive and understanding of the, of the situation at hand. We are going to work together to help Alameda Health Systems succeed. Accountability is key. Bringing awareness and cultural sensitivity to the membership and leaders. The only request that the employee asked was to make sure that this never happens again to anyone else and to be able to come to work in peace. We as members say we cannot have leaders to fail we cannot have leaders who fail to protect the employees, who fail to protect patients, and who fail to create a safe working environment. Members are asking for the, um, excuse me, I'm sorry. Members are asking for a new ED director. The trust has been broken by her actions. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Palacios, for your comments. Um, with that, um, council or Madam Clerk, any other public comment? I think we'll close this section then. All right, thank you, sir. Um, uh, Mr. CEO, the report is your, sir, item B, the CEO report. Very good. Thank you uh, for this opportunity. Um, I have a number of items that I'd like to review in the time allotted to me. Um, I will start, though, with a recognition opportunity. And I think um, that many of you are aware that during the weekly desktop chat, I close the sessions by recognizing an employee or employees who have gone above and beyond. And um, I'd like to share that same opportunity with the board of trustees and the public. So I'm gonna share the comments that I um, provided today during the desktop chat. So I'm gonna open my report with the recognition for the Highland ED staff and admissions team. And I, I'm going to share the note that I received recently from one of our employees. The note reads, my daughter was in a severe car accident about a year ago. She was taken via ambulance to Highland ED and from the emergency room was taken directly to surgery. She was in the ICU for about a week, then was an inpatient for another three weeks. She received excellent care at Highland. The car she was in was totaled and she lost some memory of what happened during that time. She forgot that she cast a check for $600 on the morning of the accident. Almost a year after the accident, she received a call from a staff member in admissions. 
they were doing a check of patients' belongings stored during admissions, and they were calling to notify her that they had a bag in storage with her name on it. A staff member in the ED placed the $600 and some clothing in a bag and forwarded it to admissions. When she retrieved the bag from admissions, the $600 was handed to her to the dollar. I am sure the bag passed through more than one set of hands, all honest hands. My daughter is telling everyone the people at Highland saved my life and my money. We are very grateful for the care she received at Highland and for the professionalism that was demonstrated. That's, not, that's the end of her note. And I will just say that I was not surprised to hear this recounting, but I was and I remain extremely proud of our team every day. It gives me great pleasure to be able to share such a wonderful experience with you all today. So now I will turn to my report. Um, Dave, if you'd be so kind. Great. Okay, next slide, please. Um, I will be using the pillars of the organization. And so our first pillar that I will be speaking to is workforce. And so if we could advance. Next slide, please. As of the 11th of October, we have um, active employees um, of 5,178, and 91% of them are fully vaccinated. Obviously, that means that 9% are not. We had a mandatory vaccine deadline of the end of September, and so employees who either have not been fully vaccinated or do not have a medical or religious exemption are no longer able to work. We haven't completed the process of evaluating all of the religious exemptions that have been submitted. And so those employees are continuing to work while their um, exemptions that they've submitted are being evaluated. But you know, we're very happy that we are 91% plus fully vaccinated and doing everything in our power to make sure that we have a safe environment, both for our patients and our residents and also for our staff. Next slide, please. I've talked to the trustees in the past about the rounding that it's called, it's noted as CEO rounding, but it's not just me. Other executives are participating in the rounding and um, to my great pleasure, trustees as well. And so um, I would just report that um, as of yesterday, I've done 43 distinct facility visits. And during those rounds, I take um, meetings, individual meetings. And so there, it's a 10 minute session um, where individual employees anybody can meet and talk to me and share their concerns, their interests, tell me about their work. And so um, have done 103 of those meetings and 54 similar meetings with physicians. So um, that program is going very well. Next slide, please. So um, this is a, a lot of fun. Um, we've initiated a walking series and again, um, Great staff participation. Um, trustees have participated as well. This past Saturday, we were at Lake Merritt and we had over 15 employees. No pets this time. That was a little disappointing. But um, we're partnering with the Senior Center there at the lake right across this diagonal from the um, Cathedral of Light Church. And um, so they allow us to set up our tent, although we didn't have the tent this past weekend, but we had um, parking spaces reserved for staff and we met. Our wellness coordinator, Sophia Newton, led a stretching exercise in advance. And then we walk and we talk and we enjoy um, the Oakland scenery. We have a walk coming up um, later uh, in the next couple of days over at Alameda. And so I would urge any and all to come and join us if you're available to do so. Next slide, please. Moving now to the culture of safety survey update. Next slide. 
Um, I have reported to you previously about our updates, and I'm pleased to report that steps one through four are now 100% complete, and we are now at step five, which is the action planning, implementation, and monitoring phase. And so this is where um, now the staff has the opportunity, as was noted in the article, to have a say in what's happening in their departments to really help build the future that will help them feel safe and empowered and engaged in their workplace. So we're very excited about this work. The completion targeted date for this aspect of the work is the end of the calendar year. Next slide, please. This one's a little busy, but I'm gonna do a, a dive for you. Um, if you look at the primary drivers um, right here, you can see that um, the results indicate that 77% of our providers and staff perceive teamwork in their work settings as poor, and 69% did not feel psychologically safe to speak up. So, and then we look at the secondary drivers. Um, there were 53% of the providers and staff um, who felt they were not well informed. There was limited communication from their leader and who did not feel supported by local leadership. And so the overarching AHS goal for fiscal year 22 is to focus on organization-wide teamwork and safety climate. And so that's the charge of the leaders as they're building the plans which will be implemented is to focus on organization-wide teamwork and safety. Next slide, please. And so what's next? Um, this is, as you can see in the lower left, it's time to take action. And um, our objective is to have um, our leaders engage staff and commit to your action plans, as you can see in the narrative up top. And as is noted, only actions produce results. The last thing we wanna do is to you know, tell people, we hear you, we, we hear the concerns that you have, and then not have tangible, actionable plans to show how we're gonna make progress. And so that's the challenge that we've issued to our leadership team. And that's what I will continue to report on to you as trustees over the next few months and in the year to come. Next slide, please. This is part and parcel. It's a different exercise, but it's um, very um, integral to developing a safe um, and comfortable workplace for our staff, and that's just culture. So I want to take a moment and talk about what is just culture and the work that we're doing. We strive to build a culture of trust and accountability so that we can continue to provide our patients with high quality and safe care. The concept and philosophy behind the just culture is one of continuous learning and a foundation for patient safety. So we're committed to adopting a just culture and ensuring that all staff feel safe and empowered to voice their concerns, again, consistent with the article that Chair Bouquet shared with us. Um, next slide, please. So this is our implementation plan. And we now are embarking on a mandatory four-hour just culture training, which is required for all AHS management. Um, it begins in next week, and it will go through mid-December of this year and leaders are being pre-assigned to interdisciplinary cohorts, and they must complete this training by the end of the calendar year. And then, as you can see in the second bullet, um, staff participation, there is a one-hour e-learning just cultural module that will be disseminated to all staff, and they, will have, they must complete that by the 31st of March of next year. Next slide, please. Now, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, one more slide, please. Yes, um, moving to the strategic planning process, which was alluded to earlier, um, we are at the end of the prior strategic plan. And so it's um, imperative on us to um, implement the process of 
building a new strategic plan for the years to come for the Alameda Health System. And to that end, myself, Mark Fratsky, and Dr. Bouquet, chair of the board, um, interviewed four different firms um, who all were well regarded and had done significant work with safety net organizations, public hospital entities. So they had the bona fides. And so we interviewed them really to try to make sure that we had the right fit. Those firms were Guidehouse, Kaufman Hall, Huron, who we are currently engaged with for the best initiative, and Premier MDs. After assessing um, the various firms, we were looking for alignment with the mission of AHS, and we chose Huron because um, for a number of reasons. One, that they have a running start given the work that's already underway with the best, which is the Building Excellence Sustainability and Trust Initiative. And there are economies of scale that will be realized by virtue of the fact that their fees are, they're going to essentially, as appropriate, merge the two projects. And so we do get the economies of scales of already having them engaged. And they have the added benefit of being able to bring the, to the project InnoSight, which is a, a boutique firm that is within Huron, and they focus on strategic planning. And we felt like their ability to bring that kind of subject matter expertise to the strategic planning process was going to bring benefit to the organization. So that was the impetus for choosing um, Huron InnoSight to be our strategic planning partner. Uh, next slide, please. And so now we're gonna take a moment and talk about a few quality issues, one being the mock survey and the True North metrics. So next slide, please. We recently had a four-day mock survey here at Highland, and I just wanna touch on a few um, highlights. Um, there were four surveyors, there were two nurses, one physician and um, one from the uh, life uh, safety domain. The objective was to assess the compliance with the Joint Commission standards and CMS um, and to identify gaps in organizational and system issues. And so the final report will be available to us in two to three weeks, but the findings that they identified were grouped in four key areas, that being the environment of care, life safety, infection prevention, care of the patient, and then leadership. Next slide, please. So our actions as a result of the mock survey will be to create four work groups, um, as I've just articulated, to address the findings across the system. The works groups will prioritize the work per, per the, the SAFER matrix, which is how they present to us their findings. And then the works groups will be meeting weekly, and um, that's going to start within the next week or so. Um, and then we will conduct a similar type of an analysis for Sam Leandro as well as John George next month. Thank you. Next slide, please. This is our True North metric dashboard, and it's, again, a very busy slide, and for that I apologize, but this is something the trustees have received in the past, and I felt like it was important to, to bring this back to you. And so I just want to touch on a few of the critical elements of this, and I'm happy to take questions at the end. Um, when you look at the very first one under access, days to third next available appointment, um, that is dropped by, as you can see, about two and a half days. So we um, are not where we want to be. We're at 27 year to date, fiscal year, 27 year to date. The baseline last year was 29.5. Our goal is to be at 26.55. So not at our goal and fairly early in the fiscal year, but we are cautiously optimistic about the progress that's been made. That's in primary. Um, when you look at specialty, we're doing really well. You can see that the baseline was 15.5. Our goal is to be at 13.95, and year-to-date, we're at 8. So um, 
obviously that's a significant improvement and we hope to maintain that gain and certainly to um, exceed our target of 13.95. Um, the length of stay, which is the next item, the baseline last year was 1.07, goal to be at 1.04. We're beating that right now. We're at 1.01 .01 on a year to date. Um, we've not had the same, we've had success with the next one, which is the adult acute med length of stay. We're, our baseline was 5.7. Our goal is to be at 4.6. We're at 4.7, so almost at goal. Again, fairly early in the fiscal year, but, but promising progress thus far. I will not um, read you the EBITDA, the operating margin, um, and the cash collections, but I will tell you that those are all trending um, in the right direction, and so we're cautiously optimistic about that. Um, I will direct your attention down further on the page to um, the AHS gross, gross days and accounts receivable, um, just at the bottom of sustainability, and that's not made the progress that we'd hoped. Our baseline was 59. We're currently at 56.9. Our goal is to be at 50. And so again, progress, but not the kind of progress that we would hope for. I will draw your attention down into the quality section. If you look at um, the readmits, um, the baseline was 11.88. Our goal is to be at 11.56. And um, that is actually doing very well. We're currently at 5.92. That's, um, that's very good. And I don't know that We'll sustain that. It would be great if we could, but that's progressing well. I cannot say the same about hospital-acquired infections. Um, our baseline was 0.88. Um, our goal is to be at 0.59, and we're currently at 0.97. So that's an area where we need to um, refocus, uh, recalibrate, because that's not doing as well as we'd hope. Um, I will now draw your attention down to the very bottom of the page under workforce. Um, turnover is that our baseline was 14.7. Um, our Goal is identified as pending, but you can see that our performance thus far is at 12.9. And so again, we've made progress, but still I believe that's too much turnover. And we are actively looking, Lorna Jones and her team are actively working on what we can be doing to do a better job to decrease turnover among our staff. Next slide, please. One more, please. This is um, an update on the relocation efforts regarding the Afghani population that we anticipate to be coming to the Bay Area. Um, I want to just acknowledge um, Kathleen Horner, um, Catherine Horner, um, um, and uh, she is our interim chief administrative officer for ambulatory care, and she's been doing a great job interfacing with the county as we prepare for the influx of people who are um, displaced by virtue of the events in Afghanistan. So right now the county is using a consulting organization to develop the workflows for the medical aspects that we're a part of, as well as additional work groups. Um, we have a refugee clinic, which is located at the Eastmont Wellness Center, and we are adding additional clerical and translation support. Um, and right now they're currently able to meet the demand. We do anticipate there will be a bolus of folks who will be coming to that clinic in the next couple of weeks. That's um, based on information we've received from the county. So we're looking for more staff and volunteers to help augment the work of the refugee clinic um, in regards to the Afghani population that's coming. And our timeline plans for asking AHS-wide uh, volunteers will be coordinated and communicated during the leadership chat. And we expect this to be two to three more weeks at a minimum. Um, next slide, please. That concludes my report. And
So I will now open to questions from the trustees. Thank you, Mr. CEO. Um, trustees, any questions of Mr. Jackson? Trustee Dong. Um, thank you. Um, uh, Mr. Jackson, the North metric related to uh, specialty care referrals. Yes. Is that from the perspective of a patient or we've heard a lot, my, you know, we've heard a lot from the hospital leaders about the difficulty of intra-hospital kind of specialty care referrals. Does that metric refer to patient referral? To specialty. So, and, and there are others on the call who are more articulate than I about this, but it is, it's how, um, how far out somebody has to wait in order to get a referral. And so, and uh, I believe those are days. And so that's, um, you know, when you call to make an appointment, how many days are you pushed out for your appointment? Does that answer your question, Trustee Dong? Mm-hmm. Sort of, but uh, I, I, I get what the metric is. I, I understand that definition. I guess my follow-up question would be, uh, the referral to specialty care is internal to specialty care or just any specialty care? The referrals are typically from primary care. And so I, I, if I understand you, I don't believe somebody can just call and go directly to seek the specialty mm -hmm. appointment. They need to be referred from a primary care provider. Is that getting to the point that you were asking? Mm. The pri yeah, I understand that the primary care has to refer to specialty care, but is that specialty care in the AHS system or is it external to AHS? Yes. I apologize. Yes, that's our internal specialty care. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Thank Certainly. you, Trustee Dong. Trustees, any other questions? Mr. Jackson, I have a question. You, uh, you, your opening slide was on uh, vaccination. And yes. uh, uh, while I'm, I'm certainly pleased to see 91% of our staff is vaccinated, you made allusion to 9% of ours who are not. And uh, they're, uh, uh, they are still working here as we're working through their exemption requests. Do you have a feel on how long it will take to kind of adjudicate those exemption requests? Um, Lorna Jones is on the call. I'm going to defer to her to get a, a to the moment update. Good evening, Lorna. Is, is the question clear, Lorna? How, yes. How long, how long is it going to take to evaluate those 9% who I, I presume have submitted exemptions? Um, so I will say that I would 99% of the 9%. So there's only probably two that are outstanding, and that's just because they um, presented a, a newer, um, a, a novel um declination form that legal is reviewing so how we did it is we had two separate types of declinations religious and medical and the religious ones because of the timing of the mandate being ending on 9 30 we had to accept man accept the declinations until 9 30 so we had 134 in total um i believe there's probably only two outstanding and they should be cleared up you know by tomorrow i would assume because they were contacting people to schedule secondary interviews um, so all of them have been pretty much adjudicated. I think in totality, so we have 13 medical declinations and 134 religious. And then, so what will be the implications of the finalization of those adjudications? Patients, uh, sorry, employees won't be uh, able to take paid work here, right, if they don't meet exemptions. 
if they don't have a current approved declination, they once uh, so if they don't have an approved dec uh, declination, then they'll be placed on admin leave. Okay. Um, kind of similar to what you've seen in the news with Kaiser and other organizations. But yes, I will say that um, of the 134, we only denied five. Got it. Thank you, Ms. Jones. You're welcome. I see Trustee uh, Jensen's hand is up. Thank you. Um, that was my question was related. It sounds like um, there's if, if that's correct, um, Lorna, you said that 147 um, exemptions have been received, 134 religious, of which um, only five were denied, and then 13 medical. So some number of those were approved or denied. Does that mean that the other um, 300 and 20, 319 people just are unvaccinated and they didn't submit an exemption? That is correct, um, Trustee Jensen. Some of those individuals actually, I, over a hundred of them are in, the, are in the process of getting a declination. I mean, in the process of getting a COVID vaccination, sorry. I know all this terminology, it kind of runs yeah. together. Um, so once they <laughs> get their second shot of a two-shot series, they can return to work. So we have several that are in the pipeline to return to work next week. Do you have... Um, well, I I mean, that's, just... that's a large number. That's probably of the 9% unvaccinated. That's probably of, the, of our staff. That's probably seven, a good 7% of staff who are not vaccinated and have not submitted a declination. So, um, well, just pointing that out, you're, you're, it sounds from what I'm hearing like you anticipate that a, a majority or a, a lot significant number of those will be getting vaccinated. Correct. Several have been identified. They've already submitted um, proof of their first vaccine shot. Thank you. That's an um, excellent um, point. It's important to, that's a nuance that's important to you know, speak to because a lot of folks at the 11th hour or even after the deadline got their vaccination. And so the reality is now we're being asked to allow them to work, but that would be inconsistent with our policy. But more importantly, it's inconsistent with what the health officer has, the direction that we received from the health officer. And so we're holding the line. It's not comfortable. You know, people are upset about that, but um, we have pretty clear, clear guidance from the health officer about that, and that's that's what we're using as our our decision point. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Trustee Esteen, I seen your hand up. Trustee Jensen, is your hand up for another one? Okay, got it. Trustee Esteen, please. Thank you. Um, I'm just curious about what how this works when we have contractors coming on to the campus and working. Do they have to comply with the exact same policies? I'll answer that, but um, I will say that Ahmad's office is handling contractors, but yes, they do have to comply with the same policy. So it sounds like we're striving for consistency amongst all our employees. Consistency builds capacity. <laughs> um, so um, trustees, any other comments or questions on scanning the screen? I don't see any apologies if I miss any. All right, I don't see any other comments. Hi, Trustee Blue, good evening. Um, let's um, close out our CEO report then. Um, uh, barring last chance, scanning the screen, nope. All right, we will close out our CEO report. Let's go into item C, which is the medical staff reports. Just a reminder, 
It is the practice of this board to directly engage with our physician leaders. I believe we have three of our physician leaders in the room. Uh, Dr. Brandon Besh, who's the acting chief of the medical staff for uh, the core system, Dr. Uh, Edris Afzali, who uh, is from the San Leandro Hospital Leadership Team, and Dr. Kathy Pyun, who is the chief of the medical staff for the Alameda Hospital uh, medical staff. Um, let's go with Dr. Pyun first, if that's okay. Good evening, Dr. Pyun. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, just wanted to say that uh, the credentials and privileges were discussed at QPSC, uh, or reported in uh, basically is in your packet there. Um, also, that uh, with the medical staff, we had multiple meetings this past month, with one with teleneurology to go over a lot of where our expectations were with them and what their expectations of us as well, and just better communication. It's a big difference having a, an in-person neurologist versus a teleneurologist. So we're trying to improve that communication and improve um, uh, that workflow. So it's been, it was a good meeting. And I think that uh, it's going to lead to a better understanding of how we can better communicate. Um, we also welcome, welcomed the new stroke coordinator, uh, Rebecca Hidalgo Solomon. And we are also had another meeting with all the medical staff as well to discuss uh, readiness for JACO um, and just a real educational session. I think it went very well and it was well received. We have um, also an email packet that that summarizes, summarizes everything that's going out to all, the, when I, all, to all the physicians. And I'm going to have like paper copies ready for when the day comes uh, for, to, as reminders or cheat sheets. So um, as far as uh, ranking list, listing key concerns, um, uh, again, access to subspecialists. Um, it, you know, I know, I hear that, uh, I guess the subspecialty clinics um, only have eight day wait, but Part of that is, well, I mean, the only way to get a subspecialist with an AHS right now is either through the urgent care clinic or through the primary care physician. Or if, if you're at Highland Hospital, you can more easily access that subspecialist because they are, most of the subspecialists are at Highland and not at, um, at Alameda. So, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, a little bit of a gap in our system and um, is an opportunity for us to you know, better integrate um, the, uh, the more the smaller hospitals, San Leandro and Alameda, into the system. So, uh, my understanding is that in November there will be some sort of pilot to um, allow for at least a few of the subspecialty clinics to be directly uh, referred to by the hospitalists and the ED doctors. And um, more details on that later. But uh, you know, we've been basically talking about this for a number of months and. I'm very, very happy to hear that, you know, there's, there's been some movement on that. Um, as far as uh, another issue that's been a uh, very, uh, very big topic of discussion is the ER, the ER to inpatient throughput. Um, you know, there's been issues regarding, you know, we don't want patients to be sitting down in the emergency room um, waiting for a bed. And there's so many steps actually involved getting a patient from the ER to the inpatient. There's nursing issues, there's transport issues, there's hospitalists. So all of us have our, our part in helping uh, speed up that process. So uh, we've been examining very closely between the ED department, uh, the hospitalists, having discussions, and uh, trying to figure out ways that we can, from, at least from a, from a medical staff or a physician point of view, to try to help us uh, do uh, speed up our, our end. Um, 
obviously nurse shortages and things like that can can uh, can make things harder to get patients upstairs sooner. Uh, but that's a little, that's a lot out of my control as, as a as a physician. Uh, that's something that uh, we have to examine with the, with the system. But certainly, putting in orders or putting in admission orders is um, something that we can do. Try to get in sooner, and uh, so we can speed up the process of them getting upstairs into the um, into, into the floor, onto the floor beds or into the ICU. And we'll, we have um, set one hour limit to the to the hospitalists, so they are expected to put those orders in within an hour of being uh, after the decision is made to admit. And um, if they are unable to 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 do that, that let's say they get a bolus of patients all at once, they cannot get orders in within an hour. Um, we're um, we're we're asking them to put in some bridge orders, or the ER physician to put in some holding orders for us to give us more time. Um, another issue that we've been pushing very hard with the nurses in the ED is, and and the physicians and all of us really, is to work on the medication reconciliation process, because that can also help speed up the workflow for the physician admitting physician, and it can help us a whole lot. So, um, we're, we're, I know I know we we realize when we actually look at the stats. The, uh, the re medication reconciliation is actually much better at San Leandro than it is at Alameda, significantly better. So we, we, want, we would love to get to where San Leandro is um, when we look at the stats. And, uh, you know, um, so we, we've been uh, having those discussions, and uh, that, that's also something that we're closely looking at and trying to, to improve on. So that, those are largely what I wanted to discuss today. If, if there's any questions, please let me know. Thank you, Dr. Pan. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Pian? Dr. Pian, I have a couple of questions. Number one, on the on the referral to specialists, can you can you scale the the magnitude of this issue for from coming out of the hospital? How often is this occurring? Uh, how has it gotten better? We have some data on the back end, which is a third next available for specialists is eight days, which is actually quite frankly the best I've ever seen since I've been in this organization. But, but from your vantage, and, and because we keep hearing about this issue, can you tell me what data set you're using to quantify this problem? Is it getting better qualitatively? Is it getting better quantitatively? How do we, how do we, how do we guide our way through this issue? Um, well, at this point, there's been no movement. There's been no change, really, because we haven't actually opened up that ability, that key basically allowing the hospitalist or the ED doctor to actually put in that order um, to refer to XYZ uh, specialist. Um, so it's hard to say that that's getting better. It's not getting better. It's the same as it's been. Um, the way we get around it right now is basically saying you have to go to urgent care and say, okay, if you need a specialty follow-up, go to urgent care. Or we, all, we do have access to putting in, the, in our EPIC discharge orders um, to get them a primary care physician within AHS, and I have no idea about how long that takes. But um, once that that physician is assigned, that doctor can put in the orders for specialty referral. But we we have no control whether that physician will do it or not. I mean, they have to read our discharge summary. We're, uh, we just cross our fingers and hope, generally speaking, that they'll read our discharge summary and see, oh, this patient needs um, this especially follow up that's especially followed and then we'll, we'll put in the order for, for for the patient so that's where we're, we're at so we don't really have a measure of the, the scale of this problem we, we just kind of know it, it is a problem it's a huge it's a it's a problem I mean it's definitely piecemeal with the hospital patients 
which interesting. You know, I also have a little bit of perspective out in the community. There's actually a lot of nursing home patients out on the island that are, you know, are under underinsured, and they, it's very hard to get them into any. Uh, they're completely disconnected from the system in every way, so it's, it's impossible to kind of get them into uh, the subspecialty clinics as well. So that's right. tough. Trustee Dong, I see you have a question. Oh. Hello. Um, sure. Uh, the pilot, if I can ask, Dr. Quinn, is starting in, did you say December? I said, I heard November. But, November. I, you know, I, yes, I heard sometime in November. And uh, okay. it's, it has to be an epic build-up, some kind of, yeah. So I'll have more information about that. Now, so we've heard from you, Dr. Quinn, and then we've heard from Dr. Abzali that this happens. So is the problem in San Leandro and Alameda about the same, or is it just more intense? It seems to be happening more regularly at Alameda. If so, uh, I don't work at San Leandro, so I don't know, but my feeling is probably it's the same problem. It's, this is system-wide. It's system-wide. Mm. And is the pilot in November going to be system-wide? This pilot, I think, is only, well, I think it's, it's for, uh, yeah, Highland, San Leandro, and, and, and um, Alameda, my understanding is, yes. It's, okay. I think they're only doing three subspecialties. It's not like all of them. There's many, many subspecialties. Oh, so only three subspecialties. Which, which subspecialties, Dr. Clark? I believe it, I believe it's nephrology, mm -hmm. hemonc, and I forgot the third one right off the top of my head. <laughs> but, yeah, there's definitely three, I think, yeah. And um, there's going to be some opportunity if, let's say, for example, I called, let's say, OBGYN, which sometimes I do. I just call the Highland OBGYN. They give me some advice over the phone. There's, go there's going to be some way for me to, like, say, oh, I spoke to Dr. X from OBGYN. She says I can put in order to have this patient follow up in, G in GYN. I've had patients that were, which probably should have been transferred to Highland but weren't, and, and they were admitted to us, but, but, but we literally called them every day holding our hand. To help us manage some GYN patient. So mm -hmm. we've done that. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a little off the record because it's not something that's documented or it's not like they wrote a note, but, it, you know, we've gotten verbal advice. Thank you, does Dr. That, does that clarify, Dr. Trustee Don? Yes, thank you. Scanning the room for any other hands for Dr. Pyun. I don't see any. Dr. Pyun, thank you for your report. Let's go with Dr. Afzali next. Good evening, Dr. Afzali. Hi, uh, good evening, all. Uh, happy Wednesday. Um, San Leandro uh, Leadership Committee met on October 5th. We'll meet again on November 2nd. Uh, some of the things I wanted to highlight, uh, our inpatient and ED volumes are strong. Uh, previously, I've mentioned that the inpatient uh, had been struggling with their with their volumes. Uh, that has that has changed, uh, and they've been close to full uh, recently. And uh, good news uh, there. Um, there is a ISTAT project that's coming up in November. This this was uh, very recent news, uh, and a project that I personally have been looking forward to, and I think will be will be very beneficial to. Uh, management of our patients, as well as uh, more timely care uh, in getting uh, results and testing done. Uh, the hope is uh, November, uh, mid-November, go live uh, for the project uh, in the EDOR laboratory and ICU. Um, so 
uh, good news, uh, good news there. Uh, there's also uh, pain management that will be coming to San Leandro, uh, to the OR. Uh, having increased volume in the San Leandro OR has been a long time uh, topic of discussion, and this is definitely welcome news as well. Um, uh, next to uh, the, uh, there's a uh, ED arrival renovation project that I had uh, mentioned last month. Uh, progress on that has been a little bit slower than uh, than hoped for, but nonetheless moving moving forward. I'm hoping to have more uh, definitive timeline on projects being completed uh, during our November second meeting. Um, the uh, project is intended to be done in in in, in two steps. Uh, uh, step one is uh, to help improve uh, time to EKGs for patients, and then step two is to move triage out to the waiting room area. Uh, for uh, more immediate access to patients, uh, which I think uh, both of those steps will be uh, instrumental in improving patient care as well as ED throughput. Uh, lastly, just a quick comment on the ED uh, sorry, uh, uh, hospital uh, referral to subspecialty clinics. Uh, Catherine Horner took charge in, in getting this pilot going. Uh, admittedly, I have not uh, appreciated the complexity behind uh, the, the steps that need to happen to get these patients to specialty clinics uh, and being on, on that work group, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate all the work that has to happen in the background with insurance, uh, as well as some of the uh, basic workups that the specialists require. Um, However, uh, as Dr. Pion said, it, it's, it's very important for us, uh, both in the emergency department and uh, from the hospitalist team, to be able to have access to timely subspecialty follow-up for patients that we discharge. And we need some sort of an, an assurance that that will happen uh, when we discharge patients uh, and, and sort of send them out into, into, the, into the world, so to speak. Um, and uh, at least starting with the three specialties, uh, it, it'll test whether the background processes are working or not. Uh, now, I, I think it can because it, it works for urgent care and it works for the uh, primary care clinics, and there's no reason why it should not work for the ED and, and the hospitalist teams. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, it's a cautious approach, and I, I think that's okay. We're, we're anxious about getting it going, uh, but we want to make sure it's, it's done right, and my hope is that it'll eventually open up uh, as a as a side note, uh, we we used to have this capacity, or at least uh, Highland used to have the uh, option to refer directly, and it was changed because of the number of uh, patients who were either uh, not eligible to be seen by the specialists or uh, were inappropriate referrals. Um, so we're hoping to minimize those uh, hiccups. Um, and I will pause there for for questions. Thank you, Dr. Afzali. Trustees, scanning the room for any questions for Dr. Afzali. Not seeing any. Thank you for your report, Dr. Afzali. Thank you. Um, Dr. Besh, good evening, sir. Hello. Good evening. Um, I have a few agenda items. I'm going to start off uh, similar to Mr. Jackson in um, kind of congratulating one of the, one of the docs, um, Dr. Nick Nelson, who's gonna be honored by the East Bay Sanctuary Covenant for his work in the Human Rights Clinic. Um, and this is actually gonna be on October 23rd. Um, and the Human Rights Clinic is actually celebrating its 20th anniversary, which I did not know 
that it start got started in 2001, which is which is really amazing. Um, so way ahead of its time um, when when you kind of put it in context for the rest of the Bay Area and probably the nation. Um, so just wanted to give a shout out to Nick Nelson and congratulations for that. And then I think I also wanted to just say the same thing about the um, KQED piece on the on the Bridge Clinic. Um, I think that they've done an amazing work um, by Andrew Herring and Eric Anderson in the ED um, and Monish Ulal and David Tian in the Department of Medicine um, have done amazing things in the Bridge Clinic and really help our patients that I've noticed personally on the inpatient side a lot. And then also partnering with um, a lot of organizations to receive funding and support for this. And um, I was actually talking to Andrew where there's things in progress with the county and with Alliance and Kaiser and all these really cool ideas and ways that we can get funded for projects like this. And it really, one of the lines that stood on the article that you had today, um, Taft, was was what is possible through innovation. And I think this is such a great example of what is possible through innovation um, and the support. And and then it and then it kind of nicely leads into my my last point was was behavioral health in in our system. And this is a great example of innovation partnering with the county to improve these improve these services for our patients. And I think we need to continue to do this. And I think um, Tanush Siddhartha has a lot of great ideas. Felicia Tornabene has a lot of great ideas. And I think we need to take these ideas from the medical staff and run with them and work on that funding to, to move this forward. And I had a meeting with uh, Mr. Jackson and Mr. Fratsky earlier, and I'm going to send them an S-bar of all the, all of the things that have come up through the medical staff in my very short time as being acting chief of staff around behavioral health. So I look forward to partnering um, with behavioral health with, with the leadership team and this board um, to get things done moving forward for our patients. Um, the other one was staffing shortages and throughput. They kind of go somewhat hand in hand and some are slightly different. Um, I think that for me, you know, we, we, are, we are overheating in survival mode and on, on the front line. And, and we need, we need we, I'm concerned because I think, I think that, that, that I've heard from physician leaders that have left that part of that is because they're always in survival mode. And, and so we really need to work on moving towards the things that make bring us joy at our job. And I think also within nursing and, and on the front line, we see shortages, we see sick calls, we see, we see issues that affect our throughput and our ability to provide the, the best and um, safest patient care. And so I think we really want to make sure we have staffing, we make sure we have the education needed to provide the safe, efficient and, and uh, care moving forward, even though it's, this is a national issue, we need to be thinking for ahead to make sure we're ahead of the game in, in making, making, making sure our staffing is up to par. Um, and then the last piece is that we had a, a great discussion in MEC um, with the chairs on how, um, how the partnership has gone really well with this administration so far. And we really want a strong collaboration and organizational infrastructure to continue this so that it's been great for the one-on-ones and things moving forward but what is that structure to continue this for the long term because because to be honest you know i think there is there's still distrust to be to be completely honest 
And, and that trust needs to be built and it's being built slowly. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to be, being built more. Um, and I, and I, think, I think this administration really wants to do that with the medical staff, but it was, is, it was great to see the physician leaders really um, bond around this and wanting to be a part of change within the organization. And I think that from my conversation earlier today with Mr. Fresky and Mr. Jackson, um, I think we have we have a great partnership um, on this moving forward, and I look forward to building that infrastructure infrastructure with them. Um, and then the last piece is on the department reports. And so I in your packets, I put in a pilot of, of an ED of an ED report with a lot of information on it. And so moving forward, I think I'm going to try to do this for all of the all of the departments. Basically, the one that's in your packet is Satira doing most of it and me doing some of it of putting that in for the ED. And then I'm hoping in the next um, iteration that you can see orthopedics and, um, and, uh, and OBGYN and then have those providers here so you could ask any questions if anything stood out on those, on those presentations. Um, so I will briefly say, Dr. Barry Simon gave the ED report. They are doing amazing things on collaboration, diversity, research, um, and and um, and kind of outreach throughout the community. Um, Dr. Pam Sims Mackey, um, the pediatrics division, gave a report, and uh, they're doing a lot of activities. I think we're going to hear about some of the COVID challenges um, later tonight. But you know, they're really uh, coming back in the pediatric clinic to get up up to date on all of their all of their vaccinations and well child visits. And then they also are doing things with the Dulce grant and diaper program in the county. And then finally, pathology, Dr. Valerie Ng um, gave a, a great report about their volumes increasing. And then also they've done an amazing work on COVID testing all throughout the county and they're doing quality projects. And then one of their big projects coming up is hereditary cancer screening and genetic counseling with the oncology department and which would be huge for our patients um, moving forward. And so with that, I will end my report and open it for questions. Dr. Besh, thank you for that tour de force. Um, trustees, any questions of Dr. Besh? Dr. Besh, thank you for trying to model, you know, in, in the past when we weren't such a big system way back when, uh, departments would come give presentations to uh, the board of trustees. I know we have uh, uh, in the core at least 11 departments and then we add in others. So that becomes a space time issue. Uh, so thank you for trying to be innovative on, on letting uh, this board kind of see the work which is happening at the division department level that goes towards celebrating progress. So I look forward to continued iterations of that. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Besh? Thank you, uh, physician leaders, uh, Dr. Besh, Dr. Zali, Dr. Pion. With that, we'll close item C. We'll now go into item D. Uh, there are four committee reports. I'll give a slight urging to my committee chairs. We have an opportunity to make up some time here at committee chairs, wink, wink. Um, there are four uh, uh, committee reports here, and we'll open up with item D1, the Audit and Compliance Committee, led by Chair Trustee Fox. Good evening, Trustee Fox. Good evening. Uh, we met on September 15th. Uh, we approved the annual audit and compliance plan, which was carried over from the June meeting when there was not a quorum. Uh, Mr. Ijaz Ali, and I hope I, I pronounced that correctly, presented uh, 
on enhancements to AHS's cybersecurity. He talked about uh, our road to security, including asset management, which includes end-user devices, servers, HIPAA compliance, risk risk assessment, and so forth. Also on the program is awareness training, data security, detection processes, incidents response. All in all, an, an impressive presentation on a pretty compelling topic. We also had a review of the 340B program, uh, what the Oversight Committee does, results of a recent audit, uh, and an update uh, on the annual external audit, which is in progress right now. And that will be ready for review by the Audit and Compliance Committee at its November meeting. And that concludes my report. Thank you, Chair Fox. Uh, item D2 is the QPSC. I chair the QPSC. We met on September 22nd, 2021. We did the standard work of the QPSC, which is to approve policies and procedures, to approve medical staff credentialing. We heard from our medical staff leaders, uh, kind of a redux of what we heard this evening, and we heard from our quality team on our metrics. And I, I do want to make note that we have a very new and valued member of our, our quality team. Dr. Tornabene, will you, will you uh, give us a brief introduction to new Vice President Torres? Yes, I, I'd be happy to. I'd like to um, uh, extend a warm welcome to Ana Torres. Um, she is our VP of Quality, um, comes with many years of experience in the quality realm um, with infection prevention, quality metrics, um, and managing an entire program. Um, she comes to us from LA, and um, Ana, welcome. I don't know if you want to say any few, few words yourself. I, I don't want to put Anna on the spot. Sorry, she probably wasn't expecting that. But I'm going to say <laughs> we are going to be working closely with Anna at the QPSC level, and we are very excited to have you join uh, uh, the AHS family, Anna. So very much welcome, and uh, uh, you got a lot of work ahead of you, and you're going to do great. So um, we also did our uh, standard articling that we did. The article was entitled The Answer to Culture Change, everyday management tactics. I'm not going to go through the details of it. It's a nice article. And then we, we ended, uh, as we do now in QPSC, hearing about a quality improvement project. Uh, this is, if you will, Dr. Tornabene's uh, baby. She gets to pick the, quality, the great quality improvement projects which are happening across the organization. She selected um, uh, a project from the, op the Highland Operating Room on 5S methodology, and we heard a report on how they've standardized, sorted, set in order, shined, and sustained some improvements there in the OR. Um, so with that, I'll close out my report of the QPSC and take any questions, if any. None? All right, item D3. Uh, the Finance Committee, Madam Chair uh, Esteen of the Finance Committee. Thank you so much. Uh, the Finance Committee met on October 6th. Uh, Kim Miranda gave us our CFO report and I'll give a brief synopsis. Uh, through COVID, there have been major impacts to volumes, which have significantly impacted revenue over time, though there is a trend toward volumes returning to pre-COVID levels. Um, the ED and surgeries are leading the way. We're still not fully recovered, but we're getting there. Another highlight is that patients are opting for more telehealth visits on video, though the phone-based visits are dropping. Um, telehealth is reversed, uh, reimbursed rather at the same rate as an in-person visit, due to emergency COVID provisions. 
and phone visits are reimbursed at a lower rate, about two-thirds of video and in-person rates. So the dropping phone rates are not such a bad thing, and shifting towards more video visits is probably a good thing. Um, our registry usage is double the budget, uh, 3,240 um, pieces of registry use. I'm not exactly sure what the number represents, whether it's actual people or hours, or probably it's people. Uh, we were budgeted for 1,583, which is roughly double. Our accounts receivable link continues to decrease, which is great. Billing and collections are strong and higher than fiscal year 19 and 2020. Uh, so that's really good, thanks to Epic and some improvements on that team. Uh, our COO gave a report about throughput. We're working hard to get people out of the emergency room so that they do not become porters, which is when med surge patients don't have a bed to go into. Um, our seven-day-a-week full-service hospital is trying to move discharges. I'm sorry, let me repeat that in a different way. We are switching to full-service hospital usage of some uh, services, which are now only five days a week, going into seven days a week, because right now those services are not on, available on weekends, and we've had some studies. For example, the MRI backlog was about 12 weeks. 200 people are waiting, and by going to seven days a week, we'll be able to get rid of that backlog pretty quickly. In mammography, there's an eight-week backlog, 565 cases waiting to be performed, um, and we'll be able to get rid of that very quickly by going to seven days a week, and that is due to new leadership coming in with uh, new energy. Um, we had a presentation about our best initiative for performance improvement, building excellence, sustainability, and trust, which is being led in partnership with Huron, who we heard about earlier. Um, we are on track for revenue cycle, payer contracting, dental clinic, uh, HPAC outside medical clinics. We're improving, but still maintain, uh, maintaining a watch on overtime reduction, average length of stay, cash flow, and billing in John George Hospital. And we're not quite on track, which means off track, for labor management. Um, Things that are in progress are the IOP program, inpatient, uh, intensive outpatient, rather, center management, and our Huron partnership. And we're going to get these specific best initiative reports every two months. We also had a presentation about the different insurance coverages that we have here at AHS, and we had a vote on contracts, um, a $7.5 million nurse staffing contract, which was passed by the committee. And that is all for my report. Thank you, Madam Chair. That was a lot of stuff. Um, I'll open it up for questions to the finance chair. Barring none, we'll close out item D3. We'll go to item D4. This is just an update on the board self-assessment. We have two trustees who've taken on this charge, um, Trustee Jensen and Trustee Banerjee. Um, uh, Trustees Jensen and Banerjee, an update on the board self-assessment, please. Uh, I think, go ahead, King King. So the board um, completed its self-assessment. Um, we had a two-week period to do it. I think we have 100% um, responses, and the Governance Institute is synthesizing the data, we have a meeting coming up, upcoming meeting coming up with Trustee Jensen, um, um, uh, our um, 
clerk, board clerk, uh, Rana and myself with the uh, Governance Institute folks. Um, and we hope to present this, I believe, in the at, at the October um, retreat, right, Tracy? Uh, or maybe not. Maybe that's two. That's only two weeks away. So yeah. maybe in the November, sometime in November. November. But we will have a session. Uh, Rana, is it? It'll be November, right? Yeah, it's scheduled for the November board meeting, and that's when we have the TGI wrap uh, available to go for us. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. Any comments, Madam? No, just um, um, a huge thanks to Rana for for um, getting it through, for managing everyone, and for actually having a number of really relevant and um, and uh, interesting and efficiency comments for the, the actual survey. So thank you, Rana. Yeah, and and while we're on the thanks, uh, thanks to Trustees Jensen and Banerjee who, who worked closely with Rana. This is really important work. It's actually our bylaws requires us to evaluate yourself. And this is uh, along the theme of uh, all feedback is a gift. So we're starting out with feedback of ourselves. And then uh, it is my hope as we expand into next year to uh, broadly uh, get more feedback on, on ourselves from external and internal parties. So with that, we were able to get through committee reports relatively quickly. Thank you to everyone. We will close item D. We will now come to item E, the consent agenda. The consent agenda is before you all. There are four items, E1, E2, E3, E4. Um, before entertaining a motion to improve to approve the entirety of this consent agenda, are there any items that need to be removed for discussion or dialogue? Madam uh, as Trustee Esteem. I'd like to move for removal of item E4. E4 is the item relating to a contract um, with uh, the vital contingent planning. So, uh, of course, we will remove, we'll remove that for dialogue. Trustees, any other of the four items on the consent agenda that need to be removed before entertaining a motion? I see none. May I entertain a motion to approve items E1, E2, E3? So moved. Can I get a second? We have a second. I think I heard one. Uh, Madam Clerk, roll call. Yes, to approve consent items uh, E1 through E3, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Dong. Aye. Trustee Esteem. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. So we have approval of items E1 through E3. That it, that leaves E4, which has been pulled for dialogue. Uh, just to, for the audience who doesn't have the agenda in front of them, this is an agreement with vital contingent planning for the provision of staff placement services to increase uh, uh, the not to exceed amount of 7.5 million. The term of the contract is one year, September 16th, uh, 2021 through September 15, 2022. Uh, it's my understanding that this uh, migrated through finance committee and met approval, and it's now being pulled for discussion. Um, Trustee Esteem, may uh, if, if you'll lead us into uh, the discussion. Yeah, I would like to first apologize for, as chair to send this to the committee without 
due diligence on my part. Uh, I'm still learning my role as trustee and don't have a uh, best 100% grasp on how to operate using uh, the rules of the parliamentary mm -hmm. process. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, and so that being said, we had a rich discussion during the Finance Committee, um, some of which included debate around the amount of the contract, uh, which is $7.5 million, the fact that we are currently overusing registry, and um, that there are a lot of ways to explore uh, staffing that is not dependent on registry. Um, and so I would like to send this back to the Finance Committee with a request that we have more exploration from our um, head of HR around and possibilities for recruitment, retention, uh, instead of investing $7.5 million over one year in registry services, that we consider the possibility of investing these monies in other ways so that we can have permanent staffing supported within the system. Consistency builds capacity. Is that right, Dr. Chair? Uh, I can, uh, yes, ma'am. Consistency builds capacity. Yeah. Um, so my apologies, and this is the reason. Well, and, and the, we, we are here to have that dialogue and not just to move move paperwork along the line. So uh, I, I'm going to open this discussion up to other trustees. I'd probably give a focus to the finance committee members who are in the room. Apologies, I was not in the room that evening, um, but uh, it, it, is as it, it is as it is. Uh, we will go with first Trustee Dong, then Trustee Splendorio. Um, I was not, I'm not on the finance committee, but at one point I'd like to hear from staff. That's my own, it's a request, it's not a uh, question. Thank you. Thank you. We have a request to hear from staff. Trustee Splendorio. I second Jeanette's motion. That's what, that was exactly what I want to say. Let's have a staff report. Um, in, can you hear me, Trustee Bouquet? Of, of course, Mr. Fratsky. Yeah, I, I'll kick it off and give it and hand it over to Lorna. This is a not to exceed $7.5 million contract with a contingency staffing service to allow us more options in case we need to um, fill some gaps in our staffing with um, nursing registry. Um, it isn't uncommon for hospitals in the fall winter of the year to bring in more travelers and exceed their budgets in many instances, and then it goes back down um, as the flu and, and other kinds of um, illnesses through the winter occur. Um, we may not spend a dollar of it. We may spend some of it. Um, it is a cap, and it gives us options. You know, with the shortage of, of nursing staff out there right now, um, it just expands our, it adds another arrow into our quiver, if you will, in terms of an agency we can work with to potentially bring in staffing if we need it. So that's what the intent was of this. It's just to expand our options. Lorna, you're the you're the executive on this. Thank you, Mr. Frasky. Sure. That's a, that's a good entree into that. Good evening, Ms. Jones. Go for it. Good evening. So, uh, some of the issues that we covered in the finance committee was uh, we have currently 353 vacancies um, posted and online at AHS. Of those, 85 are in nursing. Um, just to give you a snapshot, I have. 28 open positions in ICU alone. 20 of those are internal, were posted internally. 
with not one internal applicant. Um, while I totally do agree with um, Trustee Asin that we have more work to do, um, and I think that we can do that work, it will take some time because, of course, if we're looking at creating uh, additional uh, capacity with our current employees, we could do um, an extra shift agreement with the union. We could negotiate that. Um, we could put additional resources into, um, you know, uh, new hire on bonuses, things of that nature. Um, but we haven't seen a lot of traction. And the reason we haven't seen a lot of traction is um, the unemployment rate in Alameda County is below the state average. It's 6.2 and the state average is 7.5. Um, we've seen an exodus or an exodus of nurses who've left nursing altogether. Um, in fact, they call it the great resign or the great resignation nationally. Um, it is a candidate's market. So we have several people that we get into um, a hiring mode. They've been offered a position. And if they get another position that pays more, they withdraw or rescind their, their acceptance. Um, we've also had a huge influx of our sand nurses who have turned to traveling positions because of the new, because the traveling positions are offering bonuses. So um, the overall shortage, especially in nursing and critical um, to fill positions like radiology, um, respiratory therapy, um, clinical lab scientists, I can go on and on, but we, we have some critical shortages and we're not thinking that this um, contract will fill those long-term. This is a short-term um, gap filler for our vacancies. Um, and again, we, we think that this will supplement our current staffing initiatives. And, you know, we have um, thought about the idea of doing a, you know, um, additional shift incentive with our nursing staff. Um, part of the problem is um, we have uh, 377 part-time staff from a 0.6 to a 0.1 throughout the system and varying nurse contracts. Um, several of those um, positions are nurses who work for us regularly, but they also have another regular part-time or full-time position at a different healthcare organization. Um, and while we appreciate all of the nurses and um, critical staff that have signed up for additional shifts and are doing overtime, um, we're also seeing a huge influx in burnout. Um, which, you know, we're trying to address through our wellness program. And we have several initiatives, noon-type meetings. We have shorts rounds. We are doing several things to try to address um, staff burnout. Um, but we're, we're just not seeing the candidates that we'd like to see to, to be able to bring them in. And so, um, I mean, it's quite alarming to me. I, I've never seen, like, 28 open vacancies in ICU. Um, and so... Again, this is just to get us through this critical staffing time while we work on long-term solutions. Ms. Jones, thank you for that. Mr. Frasky, so there might be some more questions. I'm about to go to Trustee Blue, because I see her hand up, but I, I already know one of the questions I'm gonna have, if you guys, I'm giving you time to think about it. What are the implications of not approving this contract this evening? So just be prepared to answer that question, if that's okay. Uh, Trustee Blue? Um, so I would welcome uh, more discussion. Lorna and I have had conversations around staffing issues, and I believe uh, some of the union members will be showing up at the HR committee meeting that I'll have next week. But um, Doc, uh, Trustee Splendora mentioned I want to hear from staff. Well, the staff that I want to hear from are the nurses from the floor, the CNAs from the floors, the respiratory techs, wherever we have shortages, 
that's where I want to hear from because they have to, they also will come with solutions to what this problem is. And I see this as two parts. There's a short time, uh, short term thing where we have to staff up and get ready for the winter. But then we really have to focus in on the long term solution because we can't, we can't be the training ground for trauma nurses or trauma people, you know, uh, professionals who want to go into trauma. We cannot be the training site because they come in for six months and they leave us and they go someplace else where they get paid better and they have better benefits. So 7.5 million, I get it. We got to, you know, we got to fill in those shortages as we move into the winter months and knock on wood, hopefully COVID doesn't rear its ugly head with another variant, um, you know, during the winter and early spring. The other thing that I am concerned of is the burnout. And I raise that because I have seen in my time as a nurse where people are working overtime and per diem because they're trying to fill in the gap. And I've seen burnout, right? And so I want to make sure that we're balanced in that, um, you know, that we don't look at our full-time staff as staff that can come in seven days a week and work eight hours a day for seven days straight. That's not the way to, you know, um, cover our um, shortages. So I do welcome that. I hope um, the workers will come to the HR committee and just share with the committee on what they think our solutions are. But that's who I want to hear from. I want to hear from the rank and file who are working under these conditions 24-7. And they've got to have some solutions also. And I want to hear from them. Thank you, Trustee Blue. Looking around the room for any other trustee comment. So, uh, so Trustee Esteem. Yeah, I'll say I appreciate your comments, Trustee Blue, and that hearing from the staff is incredibly important. I don't know if we have any public comment for this, but I think that um, we're already overusing registry. We're relying on it quite a bit. And the, the temporary nature of registry is gonna continue to exacerbate what we're experiencing around a staffing shortage. You know, if we want to come up with some other solutions, we need to not have another $7.5 million budgeted to overuse and over rely on registry. I think, you know, for the short term, maybe it makes sense to put a million dollars in and imagine that 6.5 million as incentives or a half a million dollars in and imagine $7 million in incentives. Because as uh, Trustee Blue said, if, if, we have people coming in or not coming in because working in this system is unattractive or staying in the system is unattractive, um, then we need to make it more attractive. And whatever the plan is for recruitment and retention improvement, these are funds that can help to, to buoy that and bring in folks. You know, I think that this is, this is a complicated issue mm -hmm. around staffing, especially in a public agency. Um, but when you have money to spend, you can attract people. Thank you, Trustee. I see Trustee Dong's hand up. Trustee Dong, is your hand up? Yes, it is. Sorry, I, I had to unmute. Uh, I have a question, a uh, substantive question, because uh, don't 
and and this is for our my colleagues, the trustees, as well as staff, because I don't know the answer I'm asking this question. So other hospitals, I'm just trying to get lay of the land. Other hospitals use registries, right? Are we saying that what we're proposing in this contract is excessive? I mean, I hear the I hear substantively. Um, trustees Estine and Blue, what you're saying about the amount and what it can do for the short term and long term in terms of retention um, uh, and uh, getting rid of burnout and um, retaining people. But are we, ex I mean, if we're comparing institution to other institutions, um, are we excessive in this registry amount? Um, Lorna, any comment on that? No, um, I will say that in comparison to how many numbers of employees we have and, um, you know, the services that we provide to all our facilities, this amount is not an excessive amount. Um, so I, I do understand that as a public agency, we have to do our due diligence to be good stewards of our finances. But I will tell you that this amount is not excessive, not during COVID. Um, I participate on California Hospital Association and several, several other labor or um, calls with within the hospital association and they're experiencing these huge influx in staffing and um, losing sands and part-time workers to you know to registry agencies and traveling companies because of the great um, bonus structure that they're offering so we are not alone in this struggle mm -hmm. okay thank you so much thank you for the question trustee Dong. I'm going to make one comment and then uh, one question and, uh, and then and then I hope to receive a motion from one of the trustees. So that's rising. My comment is that uh, contracts such as these require migration to the finance committee and then to this board for approval. So the process is being executed. I'm gonna remind everyone that uh, we have one board meeting left uh, after this month. So that is, uh, I believe it's Wednesday, November 10th. So that's, that's uh, really important for us as, as we probably come into the winter. Uh, the next thing I'm going to say is um, that, uh, or, or I'm going to ask, is to the CEO, so COO and uh, the CHRO, what are the implications of not approving this this evening from your perspective? I can start, Lorna. I, you know, I, I, we have targeted shortages in some of our in some of our units um tele we have some shortages icu obgyn etc the risk is that um we have shortages and our staff will have to work to the point of you know our staff stepping up they've been great about it but the burnout um happens over time not only for the staff but for the managers who are trying to schedule and staff their units. So um, I think short term, we would see more burnout, more um, potential holes in the schedule. Um, and I, I totally agree that we, we will develop a plan to deal with vacancies medium to long term. But you know, the stint of a, of a RN um, that comes in for registry is a 13-week stint. It's short in duration. It gets us through um, the types of um, issues that we're experiencing right now with, with COVID um, and the flu season coming up. So that, that would be my response. And I'll let Lorna 
go on. Yeah, so I, I, I'll just um, reiterate the same concerns. We do have targeted um, huge vacancies in certain areas, which um, I will tell you that um, from what I understand for our, our interim um, CNE, um, Teresa Cooper is um, been extremely challenging and we have been very fortunate that we have such great employees that have stepped up and they are working a lot of additional hours. However, burnout is one of the um, caveats that we know we'll encounter more of as we go along. We've also seen an influx and an increase in our employees going out on leave and many of them are going out from leave from burnout, but also just trying to juggle the many different aspects of that COVID has presented with childcare, uh, senior care, all of those different things and not having availability. Um, from an HR standpoint, we're looking at increasing benefits um, we are looking at, you know, additional um, loan forgiveness, new hire bonuses. We're looking at the full spectrum to attract new talent. Um, but as you've all seen in the news, there's a national shortage of healthcare uh, uh, professionals, and they are some are leaving um, their careers altogether because of the outcomes of COVID and stress and burnout. So um, I think that this is just a short-term. Um, gap filler. We have long-term strategies we have in place. Um, so I would, I would just request that there be some consideration for some amount for this critical staffing need. Um, the OB department is struggling. The ICU is struggling. We have several areas that are really struggling. Thank you. Thank you. So, so I, I want to make one, one, one comment. Um, I, I see that there are three members of the public uh, who've raised their hand, Felix, Allison, and Kim. Um, my apologies to the members of the public. We've already engaged on this action item um, discussion. So uh, I, I, I know that there will be, it, it seems that there will be further venue for this. So, so uh, we're, we're won't, uh, once, once we've already engaged on the item, you have opportunity to comment on the agenda item before we've already engaged. So please reserve those comments keep them and bring them back up to us at the next venue. It sounds like the HR committee next week will be a venue. Uh, I know Trustee Blue is leading that. So so thank you for, for uh, an opportunity to provide feedback, but we've already engaged the item and uh, it's not the practice to engage in dialogue uh, uh, with the public once the agenda item has already been done. So thank you for that. Hold on to those and please bring them. Trustee Splendorio, then Mr. Then uh, Mr. Jackson, and I think I'm gonna let Trustee Estine close us out and maybe she'll make a motion. Uh, so thank you. <clears throat> More of a question for Lorna and Mark. I recall one of the questions I asked uh, earlier this year was that uh, the relative cost of employees versus registry. And I recall you said that employees are more economical to the organization than registry. Is that still correct? Um, Lorna, correct me if I'm wrong, but back when you asked that question, um, Trustee Splendoria, I think the response was at that time that um, it's more expensive, uh, it's less expensive with registry. Um, my belief and what I know right now is the registry pricing has gone up. And we, I don't know if Lauren has priced it out recently, but my guess would be that registry staff now is more expensive because there's a shortage of registry staff too. They're predominantly 
um, in the states where the COVID um, incidence is really high right now. So that's why there's a, there's a national shortage of registry pushing the pricing up. Yeah, it's a great study in supply demand economics. Isn't yeah. It? Okay, so then Lorna, do you have anything to add to that? Because I have a follow up. Yeah, no, no, he's he's exactly on the money. Um, actually, the costs have went ex went up exponentially, and so in some cases, it's double what we would have paid, you know, a year and a half ago. All right. So my follow up question: It sounds to me, Lorna, from your comments, that you're working on some. I'm going to call it an incentive program to try to attract employed, RN, you know, RNs. I, I think primarily right with registry, right? So, right. Um, but you don't have it. You, you know, you have, you've put something together, but you haven't rolled it out yet. Is that correct? Um, that's correct. That's correct. Okay. But it'll take some time to roll that out, won't it? Yes, it will. So if, unless we approve this, it, it may, if we don't get this approved, you, we may be in a situation where you, you have very limited tools to try to attract uh, RNs and there may be shortages in their staffing. Is that, is that true? That's true. So why don't we fashion a motion to approve this? And to the extent you can roll out an incentive program and presumably use part of that $7.5 to attract our end. Doesn't seem like a more practical use of our resources. I agree. I think we should consider maybe hearing the specifics of the the tools that may be rolled out before we decide how to allocate. And that might, you know, maybe we can give the time by sending this. Well, back I, don't, I don't think it's our job to allocate. I think that's the staff's job to allocate, Absolutely. figure out how to do but that. We need to know what the other options are and we haven't heard them fully yet. Well, all I've heard is that, that if we don't approve it, there's going to be shortages that we can't fill. That's what I've shortages. heard. So you think you should get them worse. We should make them worse. Okay. No, I'm saying well, we should I, get I, the we should get all options on the table. Right now, we only have one option. I think we need all options on the table. And if the options are already prepared, then let's hear it. Mr. Jackson, to, oh, sorry, Ms. Jones, then Mr. Jackson, then Trustee Dong, then Trustee Esteen. <laughs> no, I was just going to answer answer just uh, Trustee Esteen. So Trustee Esteen, there's several things that we could put in place. Um, and some of them will take multiple steps. One is, you know, it's come to my attention that, you know, we would love to do like a 2020 program as Trustee Blue has um, also, you know, given me in the past. And I've done a LVN up program. All of those things require um, other complements within our system. One is, we need more system educators in place so that we could do a, you know, a new nurse grad program and have different cohorts come through. We don't have the staff currently in place. And, you know, that is also an issue because there's a critical shortage in that area as well. So that's one of our ideas. We also could do what I feel would only be a Band-Aid to fill a little bit of the shifts by, by um, putting together um, an extra shift staffing agreement with SCIU, which takes negotiations with the unions, and then agreement. Um, that is something else we can do. Again, that will take some time to put in place, and I do not think it will resolve the problem, or it may put a dent in it, but it will not resolve the issue. As far as putting together other um, complements to our uh, new hire, um, our new hire program to attract candidates, 
All of those things take some time because we work with many outside vendors. Um, but I have met um, with several external stakeholders to one, look for loan forgiveness and matching funds through OSHPOD. We have looked at, can we increase our um, tuition reimbursement for non-union staff since the SEIU Ed Fund is announcing they're going to they're going to double the amount that they allot for some employees. But it doesn't take into consideration some of our other critical staffing needs um, for the employees in the general, uh, the general contract. Um, so we have many things in play. They all take time. I just don't think we have enough time to do it before the end of the year. And we're on the, you know, the cusp of going into flu season where we're going to have even a, a bigger crunch for critical staffing needs. Thank you. Trustee Dong, then Mr. Sorry. Uh, I think it was Mr. Jackson and Trustee Dong. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I, I will be brief, and um, I would just say that my points have the previous two speakers have touched on them. One, um, this was not done lightly by the staff. We didn't ask for this approval, which we received at finance, um, lightly. We don't intend to spend $7 million. That's a not, not to exceed number. I, I feel like people are kind of hung up on $7 million. We We do not expect to spend $7 million. Two, time is the one thing that we can't get back. So to delay this, it just exacerbates the problem. We're going to have staff who will continue to be burned out, as uh, Ms. Jones spoke to. And then if and when this is approved, we're now behind the eight ball because we've not been able to engage these staff. So um, obviously the trustees will do what they believe is right. But I think that um, delaying this is going to exacerbate an already um, obvious clearing dangerous situation. Trustee Dong. Um, uh, I'm worried because one, flu season is here. Two, we hope the pandemic is over, but we don't know if it'll mutate. And lastly, there's a lot of pent up uh, health um, needs by people who have delayed care and has exacerbated their conditions. And that's been seen um over time current you know post uh as people are starting to come back and uh to go to their regular medical appointments and i'm looking at the uh documents attached for this um item and it's actually backdated to september so i mean um yeah september 16th so we are really um and it's a one-year contract right so anyway i'm worried and those are my comments Trustee Fox. Uh, I think having been in hospitals going through difficult flu seasons during the winter, uh, not having this um, outlet for, for getting additional staff uh, is a difficult, puts, puts the administration and, and nursing uh, management in a pretty difficult position. Um, I think we we should go ahead and, and approve this tonight. We could consider approving possibly a lower number. Still go ahead with the discussions that we plan to have starting next week with the HR committee. I think that's an, you know attracting and retaining uh, nurses is uh, an important objective. It's uh, short-term and strategic for AHS. We should, and whether or not we have this uh, uh, safety valve of an outside agency who will send us uh, 
registry nurses, we still need to figure out how to solve this problem going forward. So I think we should, Trustee Blue should continue to have the discussions that she plans to have with the HR committee. Uh, but I think to tie management's hands, uh, basically giving them only the, op the option of working everybody harder and, uh, with doubles and overtime uh, isn't a good solution to anybody. Trustee Splen thank you, Trustee Fox. Trustee Splendorio, Trustee Esteen, you get to close the shop, okay? Well, I'm going to clear up this. I'm going to make a motion to approve this uh, per the staff recommendation and of the finance committee recommendation with, with a rider. And that is that either through the, I think through the HR committee, that the HR department present its panoply of options that it, it may come up with to uh, attract and recruit and incentivize um, employed nurses to come to AHS. Trustee Splendorio, hold on that motion just for a second. I, I, I hear you. Trustee Esteen. Yeah, I appreciate everybody's uh, input tonight. And, you know, I think that we have to think about this in a lot of ways. Number one, the nursing crisis is not new. Uh, I became a nurse 12 years ago. There was a nursing shortage then. What is new is that we are in the middle of a pandemic worldwide. COVID has really exacerbated many things and has been very scary for healthcare workers and has been impactful on people's lives and, and led to many deaths of healthcare workers, especially workers of color. So I feel this incredibly personally and take uh, with heavy duty uh, serving as both a nurse and a trustee on this board um, with great consideration that economics is way more than dollars and cents. When we talk about quality, we heard from Dr. Besh, we heard from Chair Bouquet, when we talk about quality of care, it means more than the dollar cost of a staff person. When we talk about quality of care, we know that having consistent care is better for patients on, in any setting, whether it's behavioral health, whether it's in the ICU, whether it's on an airplane. Uh, what is the thing you told me, Chair Bouquet, that first teams? About 70% of airline accidents are first teams flying together. And what that means is consistency prevents mistakes. Consistency saves lives. Um, and so I think when we think about all the solutions that are possible to solve a staffing crisis, uh, to invest more heavily, to double down even further on short-term registry is another short-term solution, a 13-week solution at a time. And uh, we do have limited resources in this health system. Um, while $7.5 million may not seem like an exorbitant amount of money, I think waiting another three weeks to get back to the Finance Committee to hear all of the different options, the panoply. I know the HR Committee may already have its agenda set, and if it isn't, then we can hear it then at the it's HR Committee. Set. Perfect. It's due, on, it's due on Friday. Excellent. So we could hear more at the HR Committee, though not all Finance Committee members are members of the HR Committee. Um, and we can come back to the Finance Committee, hear what this is. I'm not saying that we shouldn't necessarily go this way, but I think that we need all the options on the table. Nurse educators, I'm curious about how much a nurse educator has been offered pay-wise at AHS, because I know that there are nurses on this call right now who 
are qualified nurse educators who currently are employed within the system. And uh, what I've been informed is that the nurse educator salary is offered at $55 an hour, which is not competitive. And so if we want to solve these problems, we have to be doing this with earnest deliberateness and with respect for the staff so that we can attract people, so that we can have long-term solutions. And I think that when we talk about how to recruit, how to retain, how to make sure that we staff up, it has to be done with full consideration of all the things. And we can't do it quickly. And instead of investing $200 an hour on registry nurses that come and go for 13 weeks, we can invest on permanent staffing within the system to make sure we have the best quality of care. So uh, I would love to have a presentation of these uh, HR solutions, these potentials. I think it's worth three weeks. So Thank I would like to make a motion for uh, this to be delayed, to not be passed tonight. I, I may be saying it wrong, to send it back to the Finance Committee. Council, what do we do when we have two separate motions on the floor like this? Guy. Uh, Chair Bouquet, did you recognize trans, Trustee Splendorio's motion? Uh, I put it on hold, but I want to I want to yeah. recognize both motions. So I'll say on hold on. So you would go. Yes, sir. So, so you would start with Trustee Splendorio's motion. Okay. And then uh, so whichever one comes first. So Trustee Splendorio's motion went first. So we would okay. recognize that and vote on that okay. first. So I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. Trustee Splendorio's came and I put him on hold. Apologies, Trustee Splendorio. My last comments on, on this before we engage into what's gonna be a vote uh, for, from us is that um, I, I want us to be cautious about or thinking uh, and and be thoughtful of and thinking. Uh, I, I, uh, it, I, from my perspective, I want to make sure that we have the most options on the table whenever we're in a, in a situation. And we can be thoughtful about our, our, our staff at the same time. Um, um, uh, we're coming into flu season. Uh, I, I, I actually don't know the impact of a three or four week delay. So uh, I'm, I'm, this is running through my brain, but I do know that we got one shot left, which is November 10th. That's our last board meeting of the month. So we're about to come into a little bit of a vote. I see tr Trustee Dong, and then I'm going to do motions. Trustee okay. Dong. Um, could I hear, Splay, can you say your motion again, please? So, uh, so I'm going to do it again. Trustee Splendorio uh, has a motion, and then we're going to hear Trustee Esteen's motion, because that was the order in which they came. Splen, uh, Trustee Splendorio, back to you, sir. Sorry, uh, yeah, Jeanette, the, the motion is to approve the contract as uh, recommended by staff in the Finance Committee and also to ask the HR department to uh, uh, presumably, and I, I think this is the right process, through the HR Committee to present its menu of options that, it's gonna that it can come up with to incentivize, to recruit, to attract permanent employees, uh, presumably RNs, to fill these positions and avoid the um, using the registry. So, uh, did you, is that clear, Trustee Dong? Uh, I have a point of order question for Council. Yeah. Council. Yes. Um, may I offer at this point in time a friendly amendment to Trustee Splendorio's motion? 
Yes. Since it was the first on the table and then, oh, sure, go for it. Okay. Uh, Trustee Spilendorio, would you consider altering your amendment, your motion to authorize a contract at another amount, leaving, for example, like 3.5 million, I'm just, just picking a number, and uh, uh, authorizing an expenditure up to that amount until we hear the, the list of incentives from HR and then we can decide whether or not to extend the full uh, up to 7.5. Does that make sense? Um, I'm willing to accept that, but I, I think you should, we should probably ask Mark and James if that's a contract that they can negotiate because okay. uh, you know that may be a, that's a new twist that the the contracting parties wasn't predicted. But I don't have a problem with that. Comments from um, Mr. Fratsky, Mr. Jackson, Ms. Jones. Well, the you know the contract um, would would go back and be amended and negotiated with the, with the vendor. So that would be that that would be a a, a separate workflow. Trustee yes. Dong, does that help you? No, no. <laughs> so Mark, basically, what you're saying is. You have to renegotiate the uh, the contract if we if we if we do limit it to three point five until three yes. weeks from now, until three weeks from now. I I can't tell you how long it would take, Trustee Dong, but it would have to be renegotiated to a price, um, if we could do it, that the board would approve tonight. If it's not okay. seven point five. Okay, then I withdraw my friendly amendment, Trustee Splendorio. Okay, so we have Trustee Splendorio's amendment, Council. Do I now hear trust or do I now hear trustee Esteen's motion? No, we vote on the motion. Well, so, hold on. So first, first, yeah, first, you need a second. Receive, you have to yeah. receive a second. After you get the second, then you vote. Yeah. Okay. On Is there a second to trustee Splendorio's motion? And l repeat it one more time for us. It's to, uh, uh, I think I'm going to repeat it for him and correct me if I'm wrong. To approve the contract as presented and to require that, uh, uh, quote, the menu of options for staff retention be presented uh, and navigated through the HR committee. Does that sound right, Trustee Splendorio? Okay, I got a thumbs up. So now, all right, put your chips on the table. <laughs> all right, I second. And I, I just want to make a comment that uh, this is a, an optional contract to AHS. And we're not obligated to spend the $7.5 million. Uh, those services are available to us. So, you know, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not an obligation for us to hire nurses to a ceiling of $7.5 million. It's saying that we can have that whatever pricing was agreed upon up to $7.5 million. Uh, if, we, if, we, if we approve this and then at next month's meeting, approve a plan from HR for retention and recruitment, we, we don't have to spend $7.5 million on or $1 or $1. That yeah. was my understanding too. That, that is trustee wrong. And then Mark, is that, that's that you got that? No, trustee Bouquet. I was just going to say what trustee Fox said is accurate. Okay. <laughs> trustee Dong. <laughs> 
Okay, I'm going to try this one more time, guys. Sorry. Um, this question is for uh, Mr. Jackson um, and Council. If we authorize the contract for seven point up to seven point five, right tonight, are we allowed to instruct the staff just to spend a, a spending limit until the next board meeting? Mm. You see where I'm going? Yes. So, Trustee Dog, as Trustee Fox pointed out, um, it's up to seven point five. So yep. it doesn't have to, we do not have to spend all of 7.5. So you can't put a limit on it. Uh, I, I don't know if there's an instruction here, but I would say, Matt, uh, Trustee Dong, I think the executives hear the issue at, at, at hand. <laughs> so the answer is yes or no? We can um, instruct them. Jeanette, if internally, if it's approved for 7.5 and we said, look, we, we know what the cap is, but given the current state or whatever reason, we only want to spend three million of it. We could do that. We can control our internal spend on anything we want. It just creates capacity for us. It creates additional yep. capacity that we don't have today. I think the question that trust, uh, Trustee Dong, if I can uh, paraphrase for you, is trying to say that instead of renegotiating with them, if we put as a as you know instead of just saying do your best like if there is something that the trustees can give a guidance to the elt then that puts that ensures that other solutions will be worked on enthusiastically and with diligence to bring those options at the next at the hr as well as the next board meeting as well as the finance committee, because we have the Madam Chair in here. So um, let, let me submit adjudicating that in this current forum. I want people to be thoughtful of this, but I sort of hear the dialogue, and I think it's a great dialogue. It's blowing my agenda timing. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> but, we're, but it's a good dialogue that we're having. Um, uh, Trustee Blue, last hand, and then I'm going to call a roll call. Thank you. Um, so I have a question, and this is Boy. how I, this is how I usually do negotiations. Once there is an agreement with this agency, they're gonna they're gonna want to look. They're gonna want to get the seven point five million dollars. Am I correct? Because we signed off and committed in negotiations with them that they will get a $7.5 million contract. Trustee, Am I that, missing something? Trustee uh, Bukat, can I? Uh, yes, go for it. So, so we have no obligation to spend a dime of this 7.5 million. This is a not to exceed amount, uh, which means that you're giving the uh, uh, ELT uh, staff authority to spend X amount of money. Should they need to? Should they need to, exactly. So, and it will be really difficult for them to know for for the vendor. This isn't one of those, you, I see your point, Trustee Blue, a lot of times mm -hmm. that does happen when someone sees mm -hmm. that in a contract, but this will not be on, in the contract. You'll have complete control over how much we're spending. So they can't send nurses to us that we don't want. Hmm. Thank okay. you. I lied to myself, Trustee Esteen. Last one, then then I'm calling the calling the vote. Trustee Esteen. 
Yeah, so just to clarify, we're not going to write a check for $7.5 million, but every month we do spend on registry nurses more than the budget allows. The last month that the Finance Committee got report on, we spent double the budget. So the likelihood that we will use all of this and more, well, we can't spend more than the contract, but we could spend more than we budgeted. Last year's budget did not take into consideration this contract. So the likelihood that we will continue to go over budget on registry usage is clear. It's the trend. It's what's been happening. And it's likely to continue happening because we don't have an investment in a different permanent solution. And this investment is in a different, is in a similar temporary solution. So that's that while we're figuring this out, trustees, let's bear in mind that we have spent more than our budgeted amount on registry month after month after month. Thank including you. the most recent month we reported on. Thank you, Trustee Esteem. So, um, trustees, you are going to have to figure it out in about 30 seconds. So, the, I'm going to repeat the motion. The motion uh, from Trustee Splendorio, which has been seconded uh, by uh, Trustee Fox, is to approve this $7.5 million not to exceed contract with vital contingent planning and to require a presentation of retention options for our own employees through the, through the management of the HR committee under Trustee Blue. One more thumbs up, Splend, is that it? Okay. Madam Clerk. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Blue. No. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Dong. Aye. Trustee Esteem. No. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. So the motion passes. Uh, know that this is important work to be stewarded. Uh, uh, Trustee Esteem, you sit on the HR committee as well. Um, uh, their agenda is still being built, uh, Trustee Blue. Uh, this is very important stuff. How we retain our people is critical and important stuff. And um, I hope we can see through that this is and work. We can give our, uh, uh, our, team, our executives options and look after our people. Um, yeah, that was uh, our first split vote. Trustee Jensen, then Trustee Banerjee. Um, thank you, Chair. Thanks, thanks everyone for this robust conversation. I, the only thing I want to add is that um, I was in the Oakland City of Oakland's Public Safety Committee meeting yesterday, and I have been in the past. And this reminds me very much of what Oakland goes through in terms of police overtime. There's no way that anybody who, who um, is a council member or any of the department heads or the city administrator, the mayor, want to pay massive amounts of police overtime, but unfortunately, as with COVID, as with the nursing strike, and as with um, as with the the fact that people get sick at different times of year, we can't always be assured of exactly when we're going to need staffing. And so, um, this is protection. I am going to hope and um, give management the, the the requirement to not to be very 
and why we don't have staff and because um, we can't turn away patients. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. Trustee Banerjee, was your hand up? Um, mistakenly, yeah, everyone. Okay, <laughs> okay. Um, let, let me say, I, I appreciate the dialogue that we have here together and, and to our executive leaders, Mr. Frasky, uh, Mr. Jackson, Ms. Jones, uh, rest assured, I suspect this is gonna be a tracking item on this contract. Uh, our finance chair sits in here uh, and it, this might be a tracking item on regular finance committee. So please uh, be aware of, of the intent of the boards here, which is to give you options and to give pro to, to, to put our people uh, um, first, to put our people first. So um, Trustee Blue, uh, you have some good work to do on your agenda building for next week, Matt, Madam. Um, with that, we'll close out item E. Uh, and we will go to item F. My timing is completely blown. I apologize to the presenters, uh, but that's, uh, that's the work that we do here. We'll go to item F1. Hopefully we can do this quickly. Um, uh, council, sir, uh, uh, item F1 is to adopt a resolution authorizing remote teleconference meetings pursuant to AB 361. That's a mouthful. Can you give us the Reader's Digest version? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just really quickly. So AB 361 allows public agencies to continue to hold teleconference meetings. Um, you know, these Zoom meetings that we've been having uh, over the course of the pandemic. Uh, but uh, two things need to be true. There has to be a declared public state of emergency. That is true. Uh, and number two, the board has to make a finding that meeting in person would pose a health and safety risk to the attendees. And uh, as you stated, staff's recommendation is to approve the, 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 uh, the resolution uh, that um, uh, meeting in person would pose a health and safety risk to, uh, to the attendees and that we should continue to teleconference. And, and that's based on the county continuing to require masks indoors and the CDC uh, continuing to recommend source control and physical distancing. So uh, to summarize, AB 361 um, allows uh, in-person meetings, but there's an exception to this, but, uh, but the body has to approve that exception. Is that, is that right? Every 30 days? Teleconference meetings. Sorry, the teleconference meetings. Yes, um, yes. And we, uh, every 30 days we have to redo the motion. How, can you advise how we would re-up this every 30 days when we are dark in December and all, and, and if, oh, heaven forbid we have this goes out? So, so, so agencies have done two things, uh, uh, Chair Bouquet. One is to hold a special meeting in December. The other is finance committee, the first finance committee in January. Uh, we uh, adopt a resolution uh, then. But it would just that would be, be... That would be a space greater than 30 days, so we would be non-compliant. I hate being non-compliant. What would we do? Correct. I, I mean, the the language is a little ambiguous, uh, Trustee Bouquet. So, the so, some have uh, again, some have done the emergency meeting, uh, or I'm sorry, the special meeting in December, and okay. uh, some read that ambiguity as they can hold it whenever they have the actual meeting. Okay. Uh, I know my trustees are not excited about special meetings in December, so. Uh, how about uh, we entertain a motion to approve this now and then cross that bridge when we have to? Entertain a motion to approve item F1 regarding teleconferencing. Trustee is basically giving you uh, allowance to keep teleconferencing. 
Second. Roll call. We wanted me in person. Trustee's team, uh, sorry, that cut out. Say that what again. What if we actually want to meet in person? Council. So and uh, this is this is a this is a uh, trustee's team. This is an every thirty day renewal. So when we come to that decision, we just have to not renew it. But it gives us thirty day planning. But what is the process for meeting in person? So, so uh, the next time we meet, uh, uh, we would uh, have the same motion, uh, or, or you could just direct staff at the next meeting saying, well, we, we're ready to move towards uh, uh, in-person meetings. This, this just holds the status quo in place for 30 days, uh, Trustee Justine. Thank you, Amad. I think the other thing that this does is, is it, it some of the Brown Act requirements on hold for remote meetings. So really, it, to um, Trustee Esteem's point, there can be hybrid meetings or there could be in-person meetings, even if we adopt this resolution. Well, well, that's my question. What is the technicality around meeting in person? So, so, so if we're going to meet in person, then uh, we're going against this resolution, right? This resolution is saying because of uh, attendee safety, we're, uh, we're meeting uh, over Zoom, right? Teleconference meeting. So you're, you're, we're sort of contradicting ourselves. If we say that we can meet in person, yet we're adopting a resolution that states that uh, uh, because of public safety, we need to continue to hold teleconference. And, and a little bit of nuance, uh, 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 council will refine me on this little nuance. With regard to hybrid meetings, hybrid refers to the audience, not to us. It's sort of all in. We're either all together or we're all teleconference. There is no hybrid for the trustees. The hybrid is for the audience. Is that correct, council? That's correct. Okay. No, that's not technically correct. Um, sorry, you can have you can have trustees that are remote you have to notice their place if i'm in the bahamas i'd have to notice it and it has to be a public place right so it's possible it's just not what hang yeah i mean for the purposes of this uh, chair Bouquet, okay i'm sorry but that, that's it's a technicality chair Bouquet. Okay. i didn't want to bore you with got it you know i love being bored with technicalities um uh so i think we have a motion in a second did i hear that correctly no? Yes. There's okay. a motion on the floor. So we can kick this down the road 30 days. So let's, how about we do that for this evening? Because I'm seeing tired eyes. <laughs> so let's um, uh, roll call it. So, um, Jensen moved in Splendorio second to approve the resolution. Yes, ma'am. Okay, good. Just double checking. Um, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Blue. Mm -hmm. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. Trustee Dom. Aye. Ch Trustee Esteen. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Aye. Trustee Spondorio. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's item F1. Boy, did it take a long time to get to our two marquee presentations. So um, the first one is item F2. This is an update from the East Bay Medical Group. 
we have two physicians in the room who are going to be presenting this. The first is Dr. Chitra Akilaswaran. She is an obstetrician gynecologist, and she is the president of East Bay Medical Group. We also have Dr. Bernice Perez, who's an emergency department physician. She's the chair of the East Bay Medical Group board. Um, uh, doctors, sorry for the delay. Um, the floor is yours. We've allocated about 20 to 25 minutes in this room. Uh, you can probably see a little bit of fatigue in eyes. Wink, wink. Um, but the floor is yours. Good evening. Thank you. Good evening, trustees, and um, to our colleagues here. Um, we will likely um, move through a little bit more quickly than anticipated. Um, I also have a child that has no child care after 8 o'clock, so all bets are off at that point in three minutes. Um, <laughs> um, let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to share my screen. And I think what you'll hear today is very much in line. I mean, the, the discussion that was just had about nursing staffing is very much what we're going to hear in theme um, with physician staffing as well. So um, while there is much optimism around um, the future of the system and our stability right now, there is sort of a crisis happening on all sides. So we look forward to um, helping solve that. Can everybody see my presentation? Awesome. Yes. Great. Okay, I, I, I find it um, timely to honor Maria Ressa, who is a recent Nobel Prize winner, journalist. Um, you cannot succeed if at some point you haven't failed. And I certainly know that East Bay Medical Group is in its nascency right now. Um, we are taking risks. We're having great conversations with our colleagues um, in the ELT. And I know that we're going to fail at times as well. And um, I hope that we can uh, get ourselves through that and learn from it. Okay, so our agenda today, we have three sections essentially. I want to provide you a little bit of context. Um, these are slides that were from previous presentations around East Bay Medical Group, so we'll breeze through those. And I do want to celebrate some accomplishments we've had to date um, because I think it speaks to how far the group has come and what this means for our physicians um, at AHS. There are some challenges, um, which uh, no surprise, attrition is one of them. Um, there's also some um, very important conversations happening between East Bay Medical Group and Alameda Health System around physician compensation and our professional services agreement that I want to highlight. Um, and then um, just briefly, um, a couple of asks uh, for the Board of Trustees um, around support and uh, a brief note on um, physician unionization um, and the efforts that are occurring, and I think will be um, there'll be more opportunity to discuss this. And so just to remind everyone, um, East Bay Medical Group is one of many groups of physicians that staff sites across Alameda Health System, all of whom report to our medical staff who report to our Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Tornabene. Um, and so uh, while we are likely the biggest group, we do not constitute the majority of physicians. There are about 700 or so folks on medical staff. Um, we are about 300. We um, represent 25 specialties, but there are a number of other arrangements, financial arrangements and contractual arrangements that physician, physicians have um, with Alameda Health System. Um, and so just to highlight that. Again, to give you scale, um, we have about 300 physicians underneath us, 196 FTE, and about 102, maybe I got the math wrong, 186 FTE and 102 um, uh, services as needed, which are essentially per diem um, physicians. We have 25 specialty areas represented, covering 10 sites and um, a 70 plus million dollar budget. 
And so just to kind of detail the, the accomplishments that we've had, this organization has been in existence since July 2020, um, just a little bit over a year. Um, we were the result of a merger of two previous physician groups. Um, and there, there was a lot of challenges getting to the point where we were one organization. So I'm really proud that, at least in, in the time that I've been um, in this role, we've made some excellent progress on a number of fronts that I've sort of grouped into three categories. One is around culture, identity, and our relationship with the system, which I think is very much in theme with what Dr. Besh said earlier around we are very optimistic about our collaboration with our CEO, our COO, our CMO, our CFO, and our CHRO, um, and many others on the executive leadership team. Um, we have also uh, established a presence due to um, those excellent communication lines um, in multiple venues, including in the ELT and in um, our relationship with Huron. And so the physicians are very, very active in, in those venues. Um, and we are trying to be as transparent as possible and regularly updating our members on what our priorities are, what we're discussing in our board meetings, inviting our members to participate. Um, and certainly I'm taking as many individual meetings as I can that come to me um, to kind of give people as much access um, to information as possible. Around leadership and governance, um, we had an incomplete board until a few months ago. We filled five board seats, including the, the seat that you all appointed um, Dr. Chrissy Chavez for. We appointed a new board chair who's um, with me um, presenting today, Dr. Bernice Perez. Um, we also had our first board retreat on September 24th, which I, which I think speaks to just the maturity that we're getting to as an organization. Um, we installed a director of learning and development to help support physician leaders. Um, and we also have a monthly all leaders meeting that we hold for critical discussions in conjunction with the many other meetings that are happening across the system. And then finally, one of our primary goals, of course, as a result of our relationship with AHS is to fulfill our, uh, our service agreement, um, which is covering the service lines that we need to from a staffing perspective. Um, and so there's a lot of activity happening here to um, support recruitment, retention, um, we're restructuring multiple specialties, really trying to be creative with the dollars that we have that are floating between salaried physicians, SAN physicians, and contractor physicians to really beef up some of our services. Um, that's happening in close collaboration with Dr. Tarnabene. Um, we also have improved our benefits suite. Those are going to be in effect as of January 2022. Um, we've improved our disability insurance, our life insurance to really cater to a physician audience. We've also, um, we're also planning to have a fully paid parental leave policy as well as a fertility and adoption benefit for this group. And um, we've had unanimous sort of um, not only support for this, and I very much thank our colleagues in the ELT, but also um, ev almost every recruit that we have is coming through the doors asking about these sorts of benefits. So it's certainly resonating. Um, and then finally, we have a three-year um, physician compensation plan that's underway that again is very much in lockstep with um, our ELT colleagues. Um, so I'll look forward to talking a little bit more about that in a moment. I want to sort of, you know, in contrast to sort of the, the celebrations and the wins, um, you know, the somber part of this, um, this presentation will be very much in line with what we've already been talking about. And so just to make it clear what we're dealing with, 19 physicians have left East Bay Medical Group since January. That's about a 10% attrition rate, which is greater than average. Um, and we're really risking service coverage gaps at this point from a physician perspective too. So I'd like to give you my diagnosis and our, our um, group's diagnosis of what we know about this attrition and what our plan is to mitigate it. This is just a snapshot of the types of specialties that are leaving. 
Um, they're all over the map. Um, a lot of them in the summertime because that's a time to move. Um, but I just heard about another two today. Um, so it is continuing to happen. Um, and again, service coverage is, is the concern. The, the themes that um, based on exit interviews and based on some analysis that um, we uh, have come up with um, around att physician attrition is really that um, what the main concern is that we're losing sort of the hardest segment of our workforce to retain. We have a very bimodal distribution. We have a lot of people that are less than five years out of training, and we have a, we have a significant portion of folks that are more than 15 years out. But that middle group, um, these are the folks that are likely to be leaders. These are, the, these are the folks that are likely to be seasoned, that are likely to mentor and train other people. They are the ones that are departing. Um, and it, it seems like... I, and we're still sort of validating these hypotheses, but it seems like many folks are leaving at this stage because they just feel like they can't fulfill what they want to fulfill at this organization. They've come here, they've come here wide-eyed, and um, they have a lot of ideas um, about what they want to do and make change. These are the, the profile of the physicians who come here are not, you know, I want to clock in and clock out or maximize my income. I want to make change. I want to support our mission. I want to be with these patients. And, um, you know, I think a lot of us are willing to take the pay cut that's required to do that. Um, but, you know, over the last several years, there's been, it's been a very austere environment to work in. And so when you hear a lot of no's, it really forces people to get into a more of a transactional mindset. Um, well, if I'm just going to be here to, to, you know, to be a body, then maybe I do need to be paid more for that. Um, and that's not really the, the motive, underlying motivation of why people come here. So it does lead to morale depletion. And then we've never really had a transparent compensation structure um, and so when, when we get to that point, it's, people can't make the numbers work. Um, they don't understand why, um, why they should be paid the way they are. So we know that a lot of our physicians already work more than 100% FTE. That's just common. Um, and so even if the pay ultimately at the end of the day adds up and seems fair, it just doesn't feel fair. I'm going to skip through these slides, which we actually did a survey back in March that kind of predicted some of these trends. And um, so we're seeing those a little come to fruition. Briefly mentioning that the cost of turnover for a physician is extremely high. It can be somewhere on the order of 500K to a million. And this is not out of line with other industries where we see highly, um, highly paid workers um, costing um, you know, one, one to two X their salaries um, to, to actually replace. I would say the services at risk, um, and these are still, again, to be to be fully determined, um, would be, and, and I would say the services at risk are not just because of attrition, but because of understaffing for a period of time, contractors leaving, and um, potentially just the level of burnout and um, stretching that these folks are doing. Um, orthopedic surgery, primary care, pulmonary critical care, and some of our surgical subspecialties. We do have a number of other specialties that are understaffed or have open positions that are having difficulty recruiting. So I'll run through some of the things that we're planning um, and certainly welcome discussion. Um, we are very much in the, in the um, throes of a compensation plan right now. We believe that compensation needs to be fair, transparent, and really incentivize mid-career retention, those more senior clinicians. We don't have any tenure-based increases right now. We don't really have a structure to retain those individuals. We also are looking at benefits plan design, similarly to what's happening on the AHS side. Um, we've, we're implementing family benefits. We also need to consider benefits beyond family building 
around things like sabbatical, professional development, et cetera. And we're collaborating really closely with AHS on physician recruiting so that we can increase our capacity in that realm. Um, we have started off with uh, leadership programming through East Bay Medical Group to support leaders. Um, we are really hoping to build a culture of yes, and I know that um, Mr. Frotsky is some, somebody who's a huge supporter of this. How can we get people to say yes so that our physicians can continue to be agents of change? Um, we're looking at very small service lines, like one-person, two-person service lines at physician staff, because it can be extremely isolating and difficult to, to be that one person, especially in a three-site or four-site system, so growing those. And finally, um, hoping to celebrate high performers and tracking metrics to, to really highlight those that are excelling so we can improve our morale. With respect to our compensation plan and the professional services agreement revisions, we uh, have kicked off a three-year plan um, or planning process to implement a three-year plan. Um, and uh, as mentioned, a lot of the tenets that um, we're hoping to implement include transparency, competitiveness, fairness, et cetera. Um, we're working with um, our ELT colleagues really closely on this. We are engaging an outside consultant to help support the process. Um, and we're also having our council um, work closely with AHS council to revise some of the language in the professional services agreement to better match the relationship that we're establishing with the system. And our goal is to complete these revisions by January 1st, 2022 and issue new contracts to our members. Dr. Perez, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Bernice, you're on mute. Thank you. So, thank you, Dr. Paquette. Um, thank you, Dr. Kilsborn. So, in terms of ask for the future, we um, are asking for support to stabilize some of our services for our patients. Um, we need to catch up on historical underinvestment in specific services. Um, we need to have the capacity to recruit highly qualified physicians, and we need to have operational support for physician leadership. We also need to harness the innovation and potential that physicians bring. Um, so having an operating budget so that our physicians can experiment, um, maybe do some project work. Um, we need to create opportunities to build community, improve morale. Um, we currently don't have an operating budget for that. Um, and we need to offer pathways to realize um, our doctor's potential through leadership, research, and advocacy. Dr. Kilswine, can you go forward? Oh. Sorry, I'm having trouble. <laughs> there we go. So we want to say a word about physician unionization. Um, and, you know, we support the direction that our members want to take EBMG. Um, we in no way want to undermine our physicians. Um, we do believe that EBMG as an organization has the talent and ability to serve our physicians, but we don't know what physician unionization means for EBMG. Um, those are things that we cannot answer. It's only uh, the the trustees can answer that, um, maybe the organizing physicians, but it's something that we cannot answer. We certainly are committed to continuing our work because we believe that we do have the ability um, to represent our physicians at the moment um, in their needs. Some questions that have come up from the board are, um, can EBMG and a union coexist? Um, also, how long will this process take? Um, how long will the relationship um, 
or how will their relationship with ELT change? Um, will there be an opportunity for partnership in hospital operations? Um, will the mission for our physicians to deliver quality care be elevated? Um, how will that happen? Um, how can we embrace those who have differences in opinion about unionizing service? So, so these are some of the questions that um, our board members are asking. Um, so uh, we can now open it up to any questions like Dr. Tos Warren had to step away. Oh, there you are. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Achilles Foreman made reference to physicians being told no. And one of the, that's one of the major dissatisfiers and why people are leaving. What kind of questions or proposals are they raising where they're being told no? Um, I think this is a range of things and I don't know that it comes down to any specific, um, I can speak to a couple examples, but um, I would wager to guess that everyone that's that's been here for a while understands kind of the, the level of no that a lot of us experience. So anything from, you know, I need some flexibility in my clinic to be able to add on accommodate different types of patients and I want to change my template to be able to do that um, to, uh, you know, I want to start an initiative around X or Y or Z and I need uh, both political support and potentially some um, budgetary support to do this. And this would be actually a revenue generator for our system um, to, I want to be able to, um, you know, access the surgical schedulers to be able to make me and myself more efficient so I can actually not be scheduling my own surgeries. These are all the types of things that have been brought up in the past that for whatever reason, for many reasons, we didn't, we couldn't accommodate. And um, even when it seems to make logical sense, I think that's where, it was very difficult to hear um, no's in this realm. I think people were well-intentioned. We probably needed more data and administrative support to really um, execute on some of these ideas. Um, but uh, these are the sorts of things that have come up over and over again. Do we have channels in our organization to surface these things to ELT and possibly ultimately to the board? I'm talking about the AHS board. I believe so. I think that, um, you know, physicians do feel comfortable going to their department leaders um, and, and even to the ELT directly. And I think they're very accessible um, and certainly have been in the past as well. It's just a matter of how things actually get done and executed. I mean, I would say capacity is limited to take on things that are new. Um, and part of that is just the organizational structure that supports physician leaders is, is probably lacking um, in some ways. Um, physician leaders in particular are expected to be people managers, they're expected to manage budget, they're expected to run the operations for their service lines, they're expected to um, deal with quality issues. Um, it's, it's, a, it's too broad a range of things. Um, and so I know that the, I, I will, you know, I invite some of the ELT members to comment on this as well as this has been an ongoing conversation on their end is how do we support a change in organizational structures to actually help physicians um, who have a lot of ideas and energy actually help execute those. Um, and, and so I, I'm optimistic, but this is years of underinvestment in that. And that's what's led to this level of attrition. Dr. Horn, do you mind closing the presentation so we can look at each other? Yes. And then I think, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you to both of you on that presentation. Um, uh, where's a trustee Esteen, you have a question. I do, thank you. Yeah, great presentation. So many concerns have been raised. Um, 
and Alan hit my first question about the nose. My second question was to follow uh, in the presentation. It said something about relationships being transactional. I'm very curious about uh, the nature of that um, and the historical underinvestment. It sounds like the staffing issues we were discussing regarding nurse registry are pretty aligned with the issues around physician staffing. So this is really a systemic issue, but definitely want to hear more about the transactional piece. Yeah, this is my own kind of, um, you know, observation having been in this role where, um, and certainly as a department leader as, as well in, in OBGYN, where um, at some point people come here, they come here having a lot of energy, a lot of ideas, a lot of interest in innovation and, and doing things and changing things. And when there's not, there are not channels to easily do that, when there's, when there are walls that are hit, when there's not even partnership with administrators or with folks that they can work with in even their local clinic setting or their um, acute care settings. Um, and it's not because people don't want to, but because of the constraints of whether they can even access resources to do so and say yes. Um, you know, people start to, their, their energy starts to wane and they start to say, well, I'm here to just clock in and clock out. If that's the case, then I just want to come to work, collect my paycheck and go home. And I, I've definitely seen that. Um, I've seen that amongst my colleagues as well. Um, nobody volunteers to take on extra work. Nobody volunteers to take on, um, to help each other even. And, that, and then the team environment changes. Um, and so that's what I mean by people are, people move to a more transactional mentality when their morale is depleted because the, the, the things that they came in with are no longer achievable. Um, and then that's where we're seeing a lot of, I mean, it's no surprise that, um, that physicians would want to organize in a different way so that they actually can achieve the things that they want to. Um, and so, you know, I'm not surprised that we're in this position right now um, where we see organizing efforts happening so that we can actually get the yeses that we need. Um, and I don't have any doubt that this administration really wants to support us. Um, I've, I've seen that very much, but there's been years of, um, of that not happening. Trustee Blue, are you still in the room? Trustee Esteen, you sit on the HR committee, and it, it is it is it is notable how uh, there are parallels behind the prior discussion we've had and the presentation that Dr. Akilasmore and Dr. Perez gave. So I would I would uh, urge you to consider uh, this as a, a another focus of agenda discussion at the HR committee. Uh, uh, you know how we look after our people is critical, and uh, uh, that includes staff. That includes nurses, that includes doctors and the like. And I, I, I appreciate the issues that Dr. Achilles Warren and Dr. Perez have brought up. They're important, but they're in multiple buckets. HR would be the province of that. There are certainly operational um, uh, discussions, which so, so how we navigate this is gonna be difficult. But I think starting with the HR and retention is important because losing, losing, losing people is always a, a poor prognostic indicator. <laughs> I also heard stuff about compensation, so it sounds like finance might have something yeah. to do with this as well. Yeah. Uh, Trustee Fox, and then I think I might close this item because we have one more item. I would just also add that that what we just heard in this presentation really raises this as a, I think, a significant strategic issue for AHS. Yes. That I would hope would be on Euron's agenda uh, because you know, uh, and the, the nursing shortage ties right into it because getting additional business, if we want volume, getting commercial, uh, 
commercially insured patient business, whatever it is we want to do, if we don't have the delivery of physician care and um, nursing care to back it up, we're just going to stumble on ourselves. So we, it, it, it's really a significant issue. Yes, I agree. Uh, this, this, is, this is a strategic implication uh, from my perspective, Trustee Fox. Um, trustees, any other comments as we close out this agenda item? Dr. Akilaswaran, Dr. Perez, we greatly appreciate the, the hard work you're doing in leading this and, and the bravery you have to say these kind of things. And um, keep it coming, please. Uh, our job is to help you find venue um, to keep doing this. With that, we'll close item F2, the EBMG update. Thank you, doctors. We'll now move into the last big one of the evening. This is the COVID-19 update. We have two physicians in the room to present on this. Uh, the first is uh, Dr. Farzad Mouazad. He's the chair of the COVID treatment committee. He's also a pulmonary and critical care physician in the organization. And then we have, uh, actually, I, 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 yes, and then we have Dr. Pamela Sims-Mackey, who's our chair of pediatrics, as well as the head of uh, GME for the trustees. Uh, it, the technical title is DIO. People always wonder what that means. She leads education for our system. We're going to hear an update from them uh, this evening on where we sit with regard to COVID. Uh, Dr. Moazid and Dr. Sims-Mackey, welcome. Uh, 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 15 minutes have been allocated. I think you feel a sense of fatigue in the room, but this is important stuff. So um, uh, welcome and uh, the mic is yours. Thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Bouquet. I actually have the pleasure of sharing from, from my screen and then I will um, kick off the, the presentation. Thank you, Dr. Tornabeni. Apologies I, 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 for stealing the intro. <laughs> oh gosh, no problem. Okay. Uh, can uh, is the presentation showing? Okay, thanks for the thumbs up. Um, so I'm going to just start with um, the first few slides myself and take us from national to county to HS in terms of our in terms of the COVID hospitalization. So as you can see here, this is CDC data, and um, uh, as uh, we've shared in, in prior meetings. We had the COVID surge that um, most recently was due to the Delta variant. Nationally, it is finally starting to come down. We see that nationally. We see that here in our Alameda County data. And then here is our AHS hospitalization data. Again, the October um, dates, that you, the October numbers that you see on the far right, the last um, point on there, that doesn't represent all of October. So look just to the left of that. And that's the entire month of September. And indeed, our um, COVID hospitalizations for September have trended down significantly compared to our peak in August. And so with that, then we, this for this slide, I will actually move us through it because we already heard from Mr. Jackson earlier in the presentation regarding and Ms. Jones about um, the vaccination. So with that, I am pleased to hand it over to Dr. Mawazid. Thanks so much. Uh, so I'm happy to be here to talk about um, our recent COVID surge and compare it a little bit to what we've gone through previously. Um, next slide. So 
Comparing this current delta wave to the prior wave, just looking at some basic demographic data, you can see that, not surprisingly, patients were younger this time around by about five years. We know that older patients were more likely to be vaccinated, and that was probably what was driving this. Um, the racial breakdown has actually changed a little bit, uh, whereas one in two admissions during private prior waves were Hispanic Latinx, 20% um, Black. Those two populations made up 70% of prior admissions. Similarly, they made up 70% during this Delta wave, but you can see it's a little bit differently distributed. 42% um, now Black, 30% uh, Hispanic or Latinx. Um, in terms of vaccinated or unvaccinated, I do want to point out that 20% of our admissions during the Delta wave, and this is for people with symptomatic COVID, not just uh, asymptomatically testing positive, 20% uh, were indeed vaccinated. And the vast majority of the breakthrough infections were those who had received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, suggesting or echoing some of the data that's been coming out about lower efficacy of that vaccine. Next slide. In terms of the outcomes, um, at first glance, some of these numbers look pretty similar, but I think it's important to take them in terms of the context of who, who's actually getting admitted. You'll see about a quarter of patients, both uh, in, the, in prior waves and this Delta wave, were needing ICU care, and about 16% were ending up on the ventilator. The overall mortality is similar, but for a reason that I can't really explain, the ventilator mortality has been quite high with this Delta wave, 92%. Um, this is this data is all through basically the end of last week. Um, so we've had very few patients who have been successfully liberated from the ventilator um, this time around, which has been pretty discouraging uh, and, and difficult. Uh, I will point out that while at the surface, some of these numbers look the same, keep in mind that these are younger patients and we had a subset that were also vaccinated. So you would expect and hope that our numbers would actually look better. So I think this in large part reflects the increased uh, deadliness, so to speak, of Delta, where people are talking about higher rates of mortality and hospitalization with Delta. And I think this is, is largely reflecting that, even though the numbers look similar. Next slide. Now, who is really uh, suffering from this in terms of our patient population? Who's ending up in the ICU and who's actually dying? You can see uh, in terms of age, again, very young age of patients in the Delta wave ending up in the ICU, average age of 55. And 64 is the average age who have died uh, in our hospital from, de from Delta. Again, you can see similar uh, racial breakdown as you would expect. Um, in, in the prior waves, when we had Hispanic dominant admissions, you, you, most, the majority of patients who were in the ICU or died were indeed Hispanic, which fit. Similar trend with the Delta wave, although I would point out that the Delta wave, we actually had more black uh, proportion of higher black patients than Hispanic patients. So it's a little bit strange that we're still seeing the Hispanic population comprise the majority of the ICU patients and the majority of the deaths. And, and we're doing a little bit more research to see if why that might be. Um, and you can see the st relatively strong effect of the vaccine here, uh, where whereas, you know, 20 percent of admissions were vaccinated, uh, only 6 percent of those ending up in the ICU uh, were vaccinated. Five patients who were vaccinated did die, although these were not in the ICU. Some of these patients did not escalate uh, care to the ICU level. 
Um, so that's just a little bit, uh, sorry for going through that fast, but in the interest of time, I just wanted to get through that and that's all I got. So uh, I'll pass it on from here. Great, thank you. So I'll pick up for the sake of time, talking about COVID and kids, give a brief overview. Slide. So um, this is data from the CDC. I tried to pull in some Alameda County data, but um, the rates of COVID in kids is much less than um, adults. So it's better to kind of get a larger sample size and look at the uh, data across the board, but you see it broken down. Um, by age group there, and you can see the percentage of cases is much less than the adult population, but yet kids are becoming infected with um, COVID. Next slide. And this is the data for Alameda County. Alameda County doesn't break it down below the age of 18 in different swaths, but you can also see that um, quite a bit of kids in Alameda County now, less than 18, have um, had COVID. Next I think these slides show the disparities that we're seeing with the infection rate. So the, um, the maroon bars are percentage of cases, um, and then the grays are the percentage of the U.S. population. So you can see in all of these age group demographics in the Latinx population, they're overrepresented in their cases, um, similar to some of the adult data we saw. Um, and then when you look at our black uh, population, they tend to be only overrepresented in cases in the youngest age group, that's zero to four age. Um, so that's zero to four, five to 11, and in the next slide has the, the age groups 12 to 15 and 16 to 17, which the trend holds through. Next slide. So unfortunately, um, there are kids, we're seeing kids who are having um, dying from COVID infection again, when you compare it to adult rates, they are not as many, but still, nonetheless, we are seeing kids who are dying from this disease. Next slide. And when you break it down again by um, race and ethnicity, you also are seeing the disparities, um, but it's a little bit different. Um, so of those rare kids, you know, few kids who are dying from COVID, when you look at that, um, black kids are greatly overrepresented in all of those age groups. And then we do see that the Latinx group is also overrepresented, but not as the at the same rate as our, our black children. So there again, this is zero to four and five to 11. You see the trend. And next slide. And 15, uh, 12 to 15 and 16 to 17, you, you see that overrepresentation in the black uh, community and Latinx with black being more. Uh, significant. Next slide. Um, and this is just kind of the out the data I got from Alameda County, um, but it doesn't um, break it up by age so well. Okay. Um, I won't go through this, but just know we are seeing some of the complications um, that you are seeing in adults and kids. One um, that was specifically in kids was this MIS-C multicystic inflammatory syndrome. Um, the good thing is when kids do get sick, the majority of them do fine. A lot of these kids who have had complications of COVID um, after a while resolve and have good outcomes. Uh, but with all that said, kids um, still need to be vaccinated, right? Because they're the ones that have younger siblings that they need to protect, elderly and immunocompromised people in our community. So it's important for us to um, get the message out and vaccinate our children. Next slide. 
So this is a little bit about vaccination. As many of you know, right now, we're only able to vaccinate the ages of 12 and above um, and only with the Pfizer vaccine. And so on the left of your slide, it's really kind of hard to see, but the low, yellow lines are basically the pediatric population um, in the nation and their rates are starting to come up. And then um, on the right, you have our rates in Alameda County with the blue being at least one dose of vaccine, which were above 80% and fully vaccinated um, in that 12 and above population, um, right around 70%. Next slide. So just a quick uh, update about the status of vaccination in kids. So Pfizer recently submitted um, data to the FDA to apply for approval for use down to the age of five, which is great. And they're meeting at the end of October. And the hopes will, they will have approval before Halloween so we can start immunizing our, our younger kids. Um, a lot of you know that local school districts have voted to make COVID vaccination mandatory and the state of California also fall in line to say that they would make it mandatory once the vaccine has full approval. So that still has a little ways to come. Um, currently, we are offering our Pfizer vaccine um, because of refrigeration and drying up right now. It's only uh, given at the Highland campus, but we have been working with the COVID task force to get the Pfizer vaccine offered in all of our wellness sites. And we're trying to have that coincide with um, the end of October when we're able to immunize more of these children. I think that's it. Thanks. Thank you very much, doctors. Um, Dr. Tornabeni, can you, uh, uh, thank you, put us back in the big room. So now I'll open it up, trustees, questions, to Dr. Sims, Mackey, or Dr. Moazid on their presentation. Um, I have one. Um, Dr. This is for either of you two. Um, can you give the audience a super brief primer on what a monoclonal antibody is and our use of them in our system? If possible, in super brief primer form. <laughs> Yeah, essentially it's a, a manufactured antibody that's meant to bind to the virus and help inactivate it the way that your own natural antibodies would um, and help clear the virus. So we currently do offer this uh, at all three of our emergency departments. Um, and we've been giving it, although as numbers have been dropping the last several weeks, um, the amount that we've been giving has also dropped. Um, we are. We did also recently uh, send out a system-wide memo about uh, how this can be given in some in an ambulatory infusion center. So we're hoping that uh, primary care physicians can refer their patients there. But that's actually unaffiliated with our system. Um, I don't know if that was too brief of a detail, but no. No, I mean, I think I think that's a good start, uh, Dr. Moaza. Do you know roughly how many times we've given it out? Ballpark. Are we, are we in the uh, ten? Are we in the hundreds? It's in the, it's in the ten. It's in. It's less than a hundred. It's in the tens. It's in the tens to forties range. I would say. Got it. Okay. Trustees, any other questions on COVID nineteen? As of today, uh, uh, the COVID report. How many uh, COVID positive patients are in the hospital? Five. Six. Oh. Six. Six, <laughs> which which is I, I I think there's a little bit of a dissonance here when uh, when uh, people who work here watch the national news and see what's happening in other states and then our numbers are six. So 
I don't know exactly what we're doing, but uh, thank you for uh, to Dr. Sims Mackey and Dr. Moraz kind of leading our efforts in, in this regard. And, and of course, Dr. Tornabene. Um, I think we're just lucky to live in the right part of the country. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'll withhold comment in this public session. <laughs> um, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Trustee Jensen, your hand is up. Thank you, um, Dr. Chair. I wanted to uh, also appreciate the, um, unfortunately, but appreciate the data about the, the AHAs with the Delta variant um, patients and the um, vaccination status because this variant is really hitting in a different way. And also the information about um, about the, the use of ventilators and how, how that's changed a little bit during the, as the pandemic has changed. Um, my question is about the monitor the medication that has just been released, whether we're using that for treatment at all. Yeah, so... Um, Can you repeat the that, question, Dr. Mawazid, for I the think, audience? Yeah, I think it was about the new Merck drug, Molnupiravir, which is going up for... Uh, which is being presented to FDA, uh, and Merck is currently seeking an EUA for that. Uh, that has not currently yet been approved for an EUA, and we don't know how that will be uh, distributed, if that will, um, presumably it will go through the state and county for distribution. But uh, as we do with all new therapies, uh, we will get together as a COVID treatment committee and come up with guidelines in terms of, you know, who should get it uh, and how we will go about distributing it once that is uh, approved. Then I just ask the physicians, because I don't know this about that medication, but is that, do you all know if that's been um, approved or used in pediatrics or uh, um, younger patients? My, my understanding is no. Yeah, no, it hasn't. We're still trying to get our vaccine approved for our kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you are weak to wait, right, before the recommendation. Thank you, Trustee Jensen. Trustees, any other questions? Again, uh, thank you to Dr. Moazid and Dr. Sims Mackey for this presentation. It really helps to frame uh, kind of our thoughtfulness around uh, uh, around this pandemic. With that, we'll close out item F3. Uh, trustees, begging your pardon, item F4 is board calendar planning for 2021 and 22. I'm gonna kick this can down the road, everyone's tired, but know that we need to have a discussion about our board calendar for 2022. Know that next month is our last official month. We are dark in December. So actions that we need to do are our last actions of the year. So I'll ask the trustees to look at that proposed board calendaring for 2022, and we'll find the venue to have that discussion um, if that's acceptable. With that, we'll close item F4. Item G is a staff report from our CFO, the August 21 uh, financials. Uh, I'll take this moment to pause and ask the trustees if they have any questions on it, on the written report. Going once, going twice, got it. So we'll close out item G. And audience, we have now concluded the open session agenda items and we'll be moving into closed session. Council. Thank you, Chair Bouquet. Uh, the board will now move into closed session to consider those uh, closed session agenda items as stated on the agenda. There are a couple of uh, trustees who will be making an announcement regarding their participation in agenda item one in the closed session. Got it. Um, so I'll make the first announcement. I will be recusing myself from the closed 
session agenda item one because of a conflict of interest under government code 87100, old government code 87100. So I'll be recusing from item one. And I also will be recusing myself from item one according to the government code previously stated by our chair. Well played, trustee esteem. <laughs> 87100. So with that, uh, we will go into closed session. We estimate closed session to hopefully be less than an hour, but an hour has been allocated. Uh, we'll come back and make any comments uh, if any action was taken. Uh, I hope that everyone goes home uh, because that closed the open session. With that, we close the open session.